Friday, February the 19th, 2021. Maybe some of you will be listening to this on uh, on Thursday, February the 18th. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of That's What G Said podcast. Hope everybody is doing well, staying safe out there. Crazy weather uh, across the United States this uh, this week, and it canceled a ton of racetracks, um, and more, more importantly, it kept a lot of people home without power, home freezing, uh, home without running water. Um, so anyone that was out there that was dealing with those hardships, I, I'm praying for you. Hope everything is getting better for you and your family and you were able to make it through it. Um, it's scary and, uh, no power, sometimes no water, not something that I ever deal with out here in Southern California. So, uh, seeing and hearing from a lot of people that were experiencing that my girlfriend, uh, family, my girlfriend, Stephanie, her family lives in, um, in Dallas, her dad, as I'm recording this at 6 o'clock uh, Pacific, starting like 6 o'clock Pacific time on Thursday evening, he is still without power right now. Uh, and it's 28 degrees over there. So they canceled tons of racetracks. Sam Houston, where we uh, generally cover a lot of their races, they got hit really, really hard. It was supposed to be a big week for them. So they will be rescheduling for next week. They had races uh, canceled all week. Same thing with Oaklawn, canceled all the week. Aqueduct had a day canceled earlier in the week. Charlestown had some racing canceled. So it has been all over the place. Um, And some of the guests that we had scheduled this week, we're going to talk to Martha Claussen next week. Uh, We're going to talk to Jeremy Balin next week. We're going to talk to Nick Tamaro next week. We're uh, Chad Cooper. All of, uh, of those interviews were impacted by the weather, either people that were without power for a few days or topics we were going to discuss that are just no longer even uh, happening this weekend. So, uh, on this particular episode, we're going to talk some NBA with Eric. We're going to go to uh, golf uh, Saturday racing, Gulfstream, Laurel, and Santa Anita, and then we close things out with uh, the old wrestling rewatch, WWF Canadian Stampede 1997, the Hart Foundation. This was one of my favorite pay per views. Uh, unbelievable crowd atmosphere, and Andrew Champagne, Darren Zocali joined. So we're going to talk with them uh, about that show to close things out. And as I mentioned, so next week we'll have Martha Clausen talking Sam Houston. We'll have um, setting us up for a week where they have a big stake Saturday. Nick Tamaro is going to talk about those stakes on Saturday with us. Jeremy Balin's going to help us out handicapping some Sam Houston earlier in the week. And we're going to talk NBA with Dave Handelin early in the week, and then Eric later in the week wrestling with Chad Cooper. Uh, Fountain of Youth and Gulfstream Park with Barry Spears, WandaVision with Tim Kelly, and I'm going to next week uh, recap Young Rock. I actually watched the first episode. I thought it was a lot of fun. So if you haven't watched it, check it out. It was on NBC. You, you can probably watch it on the NBC app or uh, on Hulu or uh, anything like that. Um, watch the Young Rock. Watch Young Rock. It is about Rock's life, and it's the the format of the show is him. He, in 10 years from now, running for president, and he's doing a tell-all interview where he goes through his entire life, and so he's kind of the voiceover of a lot of the show. He's being interviewed by Randall Park, and then it goes through um, him when he's you know in high school and then into college at Miami, and then it's going to start going through wrestling, so it'll go through his life. I thought it was a, a lot of fun. It was very interesting. If you like The Rock, if you're sort of a wrestling fan, you'll enjoy it. You don't even have to be a wrestling fan, but there are just some wrestling uh, um, references and, and characters in there that you'll really know and get a kick out of seeing so we'll talk some young rock um 
There's uh, also coming up this weekend, WWE Elimination Chamber. Next week, we'll have a recap on that with Chad Cooper. He was uh, one who was without water, without some power for a few days. So uh, best of luck to Chad, who's over there, not not uh, in the best uh, in uh, in Texas. Elimination Chamber this weekend. Uh, and then the NFL news. Uh, big trade. Carson Wentz traded to the Indianapolis Colts for a second round pick okay for a 2021 third and a conditional 2022 second round that could turn into a first rounder the eagles get the 85th overall pick in this year's draft conditional second rounder can become a first rounder based on wentz's playing time um he needs to play 75 percent of the snaps for it to become a first rounder so wentz move back to reich back to a coach that he had some uh success with when reich was in uh philadelphia so this is something they've been working on for a few weeks. The Eagles will take a $33.8 million dead cap hit, the largest dead cap hit that any team has ever taken for any player. The Colts will assume the balance of Wentz's $128 million extension, including the $10 million guaranteed roster bonus due March 19th. So it looks like the Eagles will be turning to Jalen Hurts, and he, as of now, is the Eagles' starting quarterback. So NFL news now. And this is a stat that I thought was pretty insane and one that was one I had to mention. So, you know, we, we think about NFL quarterbacks and when you have a first-round pick is, oh, okay, I got a first-round pick, going to go get a quarterback. They're going to help us out. We're going to be successful with this quarterback. Since two uh, – okay, so think about this. From 2009 to 2016, that seven-year window, there were 22 quarterbacks that were drafted in the first round. 22 first round draft pick quarterbacks from 2009 to 2016. Zero out of 22 are with the team that originally drafted them. That is unbelievable. 2009, Stafford now with the Rams. Sanchez not in the league. Freeman's retired. 2010, uh, Bradford's retired. Tebow's out. From 2011, Cam Newton's with the Patriots. Locker's retired. Gabbert's the backup for the Bucks. Ponder's out. 2012, Luck is retired. RG3 is the backup for the Ravens. Tannehill plays for the Titans. Whedon's retired from 2013. Manuel is retired from 2014. Bortles is the backup for the Broncos. Manziel is out. Bridgewater plays for the Panthers. In 2015, Winston is now the backup for the Saints. Mariota now the backup for the Raiders. They're not with the teams that drafted them. And then 2016, Goff now with the Lions. Wentz now with the Colts. Lynch out. Can you believe that not one of the 22 quarterbacks drafted first round between 2006 and 2000 or between 2009 and 2016, a seven year window, none of them are still with the team that drafted them just five years later. These are guys that we think are going to be our franchise quarterbacks in the NFL, guys that we think we're going to build on and, and, uh, and have as, as a guy for 10, 15, 20 years. And five years later, none of them are still around. So crazy, uh, some big movement in the NFL. We're going to get into NBA with ETOF21 Sports, Eric, in just a minute. But first, we have to let you know about our friends over at Sarah Candle Company, the website, C-E-R-A-Candles.com. These are all-natural soy wax candles free from toxins that are found in paraffin wax, which is used by a lot of the other leading brands. The all-natural soy wax will actually hold a scent better and burned up to 50% longer than the traditional paraffin wax candle. 
You have 100% lead-free cotton wicks, completely natural scents. These are made in micro-batches. They're hand-poured to ensure the highest quality. 100% locally sourced, handcrafted in the USA. 25 different scents available, 3 different sizes. Fragrance oils that are infused with natural essential oils. These are quality, quality candles, affordable pricing, longer burning, none of those toxins, those carcinogens, those pollutants that are present in paraffin wax. Promo code G-I-N-O gets you 10% off your purchase. They even give you instructions and details on how to keep your candle clean and how to ensure the perfect burn. You want to make sure that you trim the wick. You want to make sure that you're constantly putting the candle out with the cover so that way the wick will stay nice and it will burn smoothly. C-E-R-A, candles.com, perfect gift for someone, promo code G-I-N-O, gets you 10% off your purchase. These are created by people who love candles, started out experimenting, trying to create the perfect candle, and now they've blossomed into Sarah Candle Company. Uh, Through the research, they were able to discover the benefits of the all-natural soy wax. Our good buddy Tyler Herringer over at sarahcandles.com, C-E-R-A, candles.com. Let's get into this week's NBA Who's Hot, Who's Not segment with Eric Etoff. 2-1 Sports joins us here again on That's What G Said. NBA Who's Hot, Who's Not. Who's hot, who's not. NBA Who's Hot, Who's Not. Well, I know a lot of the, uh, the country is not hot. Um, I'm doing okay over here in Southern California, but our buddy Eric has been uh, in Chicago, I believe, where it has not been the the best of weather. But you've at least been with water and with power, right, buddy? Um, yeah. I mean, I've had water, <laughs> I've had power, I'm cold and not wanting to go outside. I think we got what do we get? 18 inches of snow on Monday night. So, but you know, it wasn't uh, wasn't that bad. The 15 mile commute from where I coach to where I live took two and a half. Two and a half hours Monday night, oh, you know, but, uh, you know, survived, survived. So no complaints. Could be worse, right? As I say, it always could be worse. A um, couple teams that we have to talk about in the NBA where things are not necessarily going, uh, going great forward. We'll start with the team that I'm a big fan of. Now they continue to play well, but um, Anthony Davis is going to be b- missing at least uh, you and I are recording this. On Thursday evening Right before the Lakers play the Nets So this will be the second Of the nine games that we know For sure he's going to miss In the first, the end of the first half of the season Then it's the All-Star break He won't be playing in the All-Star game or over the break Then it'll come back come down to Is he ready to go Following the All-Star break Or do they give him even more time So we're thinking like at least about ten games It looks like for the Lakers without AD um, And this is not going to be uh, an easy injury for them to deal with because, honestly, Eric, they hadn't been playing all that great throughout. They've been winning, um, but there haven't been very many teams in the NBA, honestly, who have been completely dominant. We can probably look to two or three, so uh, it'll be a, it'll be important over the next few weeks to see, hey, can the Lakers just sort of go about 500 while he's gone, and B, can he get 100% healthy? Because... I don't think the the Lakers can win a title without the Anthony Davis that they had from last year's playoff run. I mean, you hit it on the head. He's got to get healthy, and it's important to remember this is the same injury that Durant had before he tore his Achilles in that finals a couple years ago. So and, I and really it don't reached think... up into the calf already, yeah. so it started to spread a little bit. Um, I think a positive is that the second half of the NBA season, it's going to be more spread out, right? I think in our head, we we're kind of 
thinking that it will end at the same time of the year, but we, it, the NBA season is going to actually go on till about mid-May. So he has I, he has time to get right at least. And the the nice thing with the Lakers, I mean, example the Celtics. The Celtics, like they didn't take care of business. Now with guys out having to be smart or Tatum back a couple weeks ago with COVID, they didn't win when they had those guys. Lakers yep. won when they had Davis and LeBron. They're sitting in second now. I they mean, got a margin for error. Yeah, they yeah. got a huge. So if they go 500 when he's gone, I mean, what's they're the fine. most they're going to drop to three? I mean, long term, the team it benefits, and I hate to say an injury benefits a team, is Utah. Because you said it last last week when we talked. Utah can't go Clippers or Lakers, Lakers, Clippers back to back in a series. Now it's looking like the Clippers and Lakers will have to battle it out and then get Utah. Utah can get past the four or five. That's so it benefits huge, Utah long term. Huge for them. We're talking about a Utah team right now that has been on a run that is incredible. So they're 24 and five overall. And since January the 8th, They've got one loss. The loss that they have is in a game where they played Denver and Jokic scored 50, 47. <laughs> that's, that's the only loss they have. Like they, they needed a guy to score 47 to beat them. And otherwise, they haven't lost a game in a month and a, in like almost a month and a half now. So um, just major props to a Utah team that I know I, it's funny. I think each week we're going to want to continue to give them props, but we're going to also kind of at the same time, like mention that, okay, we need to see it from them in the playoffs. Like we need to see it from them in the playoffs, but you know, you were, you were um, pumping the, the Mitchell train last week. I think they have that guy in the playoffs that you kind of want. He showed last year, he can sort of be that dog, go get you a bucket, help win you a game. It'll just be about, like we said, matching things up. He can win you a few games, but if you have to go Lakers Clippers back to back, that's going to be tough. If you can get around them, and maybe you have to go like, uh, maybe you play like a Portland or some someone like that in the middle instead of of having to play Lakers and then Clippers or Clippers and then Lakers, you got a shot. I mean, they're what they're doing. They started four and four, and they've just been on an absolute tear. The game in Denver, you mentioned Denver had something ridiculous, like 15 three-pointers in the first half. Mm-hmm. They went they ballistic like, from three, too. Couldn't miss. And last night, they played the Clippers, and I know the Clippers didn't have um, Paul and uh, Kai, uh, Leonard. but Kawhi, um, yeah. Yeah, Kawhi Leonard. But, I mean, Mitchell was 9 of 22, Bogdanovich 2 for 10, and Clarkston 7 for 23, and they still, like, what was the score? Like Without Connolly. Yeah, yeah, with like what was it like 114 98 96? I mean they still the game wasn't close. They still got the win. I mean this team is just moving the ball great. I mean Gobert had a 20 and 20 and I'm sure that killed Shaq cuz Shaq doesn't like Gobert but him, yeah. But I mean like they're just playing basketball and the ball's just moving so effortlessly effortlessly. It's it's really fun basketball to watch. Uh, earlier this week, we we heard some comments from Draymond Green, and I sort of agree with some of his comments. He he was just saying, "Hey, look, there should be some consistency to the fact that when a player tries to demand a trade and say he wants to leave and go somewhere, there's a bad stigma around that player." AD got fined. Harden sort of looked bad this year. I, I do I do appreciate what uh, what Draymond said though. He mentioned, you know, Harden dogged it, and that's not cool. So he actually called Harden out too, but. We have situations like 
Andre Drummond, and now, like you know, with the Pistons, with Blake Griffin, where teams come out and say, okay, hey, we're going to trade you. They publicly make that statement, and they tell the players that we're not even going to play you, we're going to bench you, which is funny because players in the last couple years were supposed to be playing if they were healthy no matter what. So why is it okay to bench Blake and Drummond and and not, you know, like a guy like LeBron, if the Lakers did that, they'd get fined if, if he wasn't hurt. So I, I, Draymond was a little bit upset. I think he has some reason to be a little reason to be upset because there's no consistency. So that that's kind of number one. And then I guess like number two, as far as these guys on the court now, Blake Drummond, can they help somebody out? And uh, and are there some some spots that maybe you could see these guys going to? I mean, I hate to go off on a tangent, but you you like talk about players being honest and everything like this. Like, remember what? Like, the Suns played the um, Nets. Nets had that big twenty four point comeback down mm-hmm. by double digits, six to go. Um, Irving's out with an alleged back injury. He's jumping up and down, waving know, a towel right? right when they came back. It, I yeah. mean, like. I'm like, if you're going to miss the game because you want to rest up because they have the lake show tonight, that's fine. You just know, but don't just, be jumping up and down. Yeah, just just be honest. But back to that. Um, the one thing that stood out for me from what Draymond said, now, I get it. I understand what he's saying. and I agree with him for the most part. But with he was kind of comparing Andre Drummond to James Harden. I mean, like, are we being – you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Harden's the, I, one of the top guys in the league. Andre Drummond, yeah, I know he's a good rebounder, but – the Cavs traded for Jared, Jared Allen. They obviously want that guy there. Drummond opted into that $25 million contract because he knows he's not going to get anything else remotely close to, close that. to that. I agree and with you. It's a different level of player. Oh, yeah. And everything that I'm reading about Drummond sulking on the bench, and I've, I've watched a couple of games, sulking on the bench, upset he's not going in, upset when he's going in the situations. You know, I, it's just, I think they just wanted to, like, take him away and, I mean, his agent went to the Cavs and came up with the idea. So, I mean, I understand and I agree with what Draymond was saying, but it was kind of like a bad example he was doing in terms of him helping. If he can kind of understand and accept, hey, I'm going to protect the rim, I'm going to rebound, I'm going to set picks, and I'm going to dive to the rim, yeah, he can help out, but he's got to be willing to accept that role. Like, when I've watched the Cavs game and he's been in, he thinks he's Magic Johnson out he there, dribbling the between, the, yeah, dribbling between his legs and trying to do and all these. He wants passes. to run the offense like through the post and and get and and you know what? Like he's a fine passer. I got to be honest. Like and he's not a terrible offensive player, not horrible. But his his role is got any team that brings him in, they don't want to make him a focal point of the offense. Any team that's going to bring him in is going to need him as a de- like he's going to need to be what Dwight Howard was last year for the Lakers. Yeah, and he's going to have to accept that role. Yep, and I mean, which, that's the which big is what thing. White did. Yeah, yeah. Like you have to be. He has to be willing to look in the mirror and just say, "Hey, this is what it is. Can I accept this and maybe prolong my career, or am I going to be Roy Hibbert and be like back end of the bench guy, then out of the league sooner than I should have?" But um, back to what you were saying about Blake Griffin. I mean, I was against the trade when it first happened because I really felt it was going to set the franchise back because I wasn't a big Blake Griffin guy. Um, that season he had two years ago in 2019 when he led him to the playoffs was one of the better seasons he's very ever good. had. Yeah, But, I mean, this year he has the worst three-point shooting percentage of a player that's attempting six field goals, six threes a game, the worst offensive efficiency rating of any player. I think the Pistons are just trying to save face and they appreciate everything he's done for the franchise and just saying, look, dude, we have all these young guys. 
you're obviously not going to help the team. Let's find you a place where you can go where you want to go. And I think they're trying to save face with him just a little bit more because everyone I've talked to, because I'm friends with one guy that works with the Pistons, Blake has been a great guy helping the young guys, trying to teach them how to be pros, completely different than Andre Drummond is. So you want to put they, – they feel – Appreciative of what he's done And they want to kind of give him an opportunity to succeed And uh, at the same time it serves twofold right? You take a guy that maybe accidentally helps you Win a game or two more uh, For a team that doesn't really need to win a whole lot of games this year You're sort of looking towards the future um, But wh- I don't know like how much he's going to Be able to contribute that's the only that's thing That's the like, point yeah like, like, I mean like is he going to be able to go Like hypothetically like Lakers Lakers really don't need him no, like, and the only and what's funny is the the only thing I I could see him being useful for is is like is being in a series against the Clippers. Yeah, I, I feel like he would be so pumped up, and he could maybe like help you win a game against them, come off the bench, and and, and give you like a quarter and fill it up. But like defensively, if it's like same type of thing for him, he's gonna be a guy that. Is either going to go to another bad team that just kind of needs somebody um, to to fill in for a little bit? But why would they anyone want to give up anything for this guy unless you're a team that's close to winning and you feel like he can help get you over the top? But I, like when you look around at those teams, who is that? Like the Lakers wouldn't want to give up. I mean, like out west, you could think maybe the Suns. I mean, the yeah. Suns maybe have a little veteran presence. Yeah, with what's going on? I mean. Like I said it last time, like how important this West tro- West Coast trip was for the Heat. They could not have, have a worse beginning to this West Coast trip. Maybe goes down to South Beach. But I just don't know like what team necessarily for a playoff team, because that's where he wants to go to, who would want him and where he could actually contribute. Yeah, I, I agree. Um but if if they had to get do nothing like again, if the Lakers were to run into the Clippers, I would love having Blake come off the bench for a game or two because I feel like he would get pumped. But I just don't know. Like, can he dunk? He hasn't dunked since 2019 in a game. That's he, and that's you know, like you said. So he's a guy who has no athleticism anymore. He was never an incredible defensive player to begin with. Um, he's a fine passer and sort of like his playmaking skills have gotten better through the years. He's had the ball in his hands more and been able to be sort of like a point forward ish kind of guy. But like, you know, the good teams al- already have the the guy that they like offensively, they, they probably just need some help and some defensive depth here and there. I don't know if he fills that void. I mean, fear- Portland yeah. maybe. I mean, it seems like yeah. everyone. I mean, Portland plays eight guys right now. Like, maybe yeah. he'd, like, accept the role with Portland. But, I mean, thinking at the teams at the top of my head, like. I can't fit. It doesn't figure. Like, yeah, I can't Knicks, figure. Like, where does the, like, does Thibodeau really want to bring on another, like, veteran presence? Because they kind of got a fun so. thing going. Like, they're, they, they're sort of overachieving and playing pretty good defense. And it seems like they sort of like their group of guys they've got right now. I don't know if they bring him into it. Yeah, it just, there doesn't seem like there's going to be a. And he wouldn't offer enough offensive pop for the Mavericks, so it makes zero sense for them to do it. Yeah. Um, well, you hinted earlier in the show about the the Boston Celtics and some of their issues. And um, I, I talked about it a little bit the other day uh, about Jason Tatum. And he actually was quoted as saying like he's still having some issues breathing and fatigue issues due to COVID. Um, I think the 11 games that he played to start the year – he was shooting like 47, almost 48% from the field 
and like 43% from three. And in the 11 games since coming back from COVID, he's shooting like 41% overall and like 35% from three. His counting numbers aren't that different, but he's just, it's what happens when you're tired, you short legs, you miss a ton more shots, you're short on everything. They have their Kemba trade. I mean, they've gotten almost nothing since since the 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 All Star break of last year. They've gotten basically nothing from Kemba, like absolutely nothing. They right now they'd love to have a, a Hayward or a Horford on that roster. Their bench is filled up with a bunch of guys, like all these picks through the years that Danny Ainge has stacked, and he hit on Brown, he hit on Tatum, and everyone else in the middle of the first round he's missed on. And just like as a comparison. Look at the Lakers and some of the guys through the years that they've got. Right now, they have players that are contributing. Wouldn't Boston love a Kuzma coming off their bench? Or uh, how about uh, a Jordan Clarkson coming off their bench? Who was uh, Those guys were all middle to late first rounders. How about an Alex Caruso who was a G League guy? You know, How about a THT who the Lakers can't really even get a whole lot of minutes for? He would be like the sixth or seventh guy in Boston. We, this is something that you and I talked about With a few of these teams before the year Toronto was one of them And they struggled They're starting to play a little bit better They're, they're kicking the crap out of Milwaukee right now But we had said it with a lot of these teams That there is so little of a margin for error With them Because they have such a sh- uh, shallow roster They're not deep That if a Tatum or a Brown Or someone from Toronto were to get hurt And miss a few games They were going to be in trouble And we've seen that I think with both of these two teams so far throughout the season Teams that everyone sort of kind of penciled Into like the top four They would be these top teams I mean the East is bad And they're still struggling Both of these teams in a, in a bad East Boston is 14 and 14 And Toronto is 13 and 15 They'll be 14 and 15 in just a few minutes Yeah I mean with, with the Celtics The one thing about the Celtics Celtics played Pistons and Wizards Back to back In those games Two games Jalen Brown had zero assists. Zero assists in two games. Now think about that. How is it even possible? Because that's one of the primary guys with the ball in his hands. That When I saw that in the box store, that blew my mind. I watched the full game last night against the Hawks and the one they played before against the Nuggets. Their ball movement isn't as good as it was last year. I have no idea why they're not playing Tatum and Brown in the post more. Everything is on the wing ISO, which makes zero sense to me. Get in the post, take advantage of your height advantage. And Kemba, like, can't play back-to-backs anymore because of the knee. And he's just not explosive. He can't take anyone off the dribble. And honestly, they're really missing Marcus Smart because the leadership that he brings to make sure everyone is competitively engaged on the offensive and defensive side of the floor is just something, like, no one else has. And they're just really missing that spark plug that he brings. Smart is a huge piece for them And this just something that we noted all along They weren't going to be a team That was going to be deep enough to uh, To like withstand And, the, and I wonder like Because I'm a, like for people who don't know I'm a coach There's been times I've worked I mainly work with kids you want to get your kid into college That's what I do And there's been times where I've worked with a kid Like four or five years and my voice They just need a new voice. It wasn't like I was coaching them wrong. Exactly. It's just they just needed a new voice. So the guy I worked with, I was like, hey, can can you start working with so-and-so? Now, Stevens has been there for a while. You got to – now, I think Stevens is one of the better coaches in the league. You wonder if his voice is just starting to fall on deaf ears and they need to make a change. But then who are they changed to? Mark Jackson? Like, you know what I mean? It's not like there's 
a lot of good coaching options out there. And I don't know even like they're I just don't think their roster is that good. After yeah. like they've got two really good two-way wing players that are probably now in like their top 20 players now, I'd say, as far as what they can both do on both sides of the ball. But if you're getting nothing from Kemba and and Smart is, you know, not around right now, those two guys you need for 35 minutes. After that, Tice, Thompson, and then what the Pritchard was okay. Then the rest of their bench is just a bunch of guys that, that are not have not shown anything. Um and Teague's yeah, been this, a nightmare. They they brought in Jeff Teague. He's been yeah, an he's been nightmare. horrible. Absolutely terrible. So um the Celtics at five hundred, they're not playing all that well. Right now, with a minute left to go in the Toronto Milwaukee game, Toronto's gonna win. They're up by you know, they're by fifteen on Milwaukee, and Milwaukee is gonna be 16 and 13 so they're going to be in the three spot I, I mean they're playing better than most of the east but the east is bad and and this this milwaukee team had lost four game they're gonna they're gonna have a five, five game losing streak now after tonight i mean the thing with the bucks now i live in the northern burbs so i actually do have buck season tickets when stuff was open so i go to an insane amount of bucks games now the thing I've noticed is obviously they're missing Holiday. Holiday's not in there. They're missing what he brings in the offensive and defensive side of the ball. Um, in terms of defense, with Lopez on the floor, the Bucks are allowing 1.4 more points per 100 possessions. Last year, when he was on the floor, they were allowing 5.6 points less. So obviously Lopez is... The defense that he was bringing last year, now he was in the conversation actually last year as defensive player of the year, is just gone. He's really struggling in the pick and roll, and Coach Bud insists on switching every pick and roll. And t- people last year are shoot were shooting 46% against him. This year they're shooting 56% against him. Giannis, who was in the running for defensive player of the year, people were shooting 41% against him. This year they're shooting 54%. When Giannis is guarding you. So the defense this year, they're just not getting stops. I mean, I don't know if they're going to have to play Portis more, but if they put Portis in and bring Lopez's minutes down, Portis is better in the pick and roll defense, but he can't protect the rim like Lopez does. So that, that would force Giannis to be the rim protector more. And then in terms of offense, their spacing sucks. They do this weave action by the um, three throw line where there's no spacing. They put Giannis at the top. Try to have him dribble. I really feel teams have figured out Giannis because it's either a drive to the right, drive to the left, Euro stepping up. I think what they need to do is put that ball in Middleton's hands more, run old school pick and roll with Middleton and Giannis, or just go to the right side of the floor. Middleton's out. You dump it into the post to Giannis, but they're just getting way too predictable. And it's kind of like when you're an old man, and I'm not saying Coach Bud is an old man, you get stuck in your ways. Mm -hmm. He's had the best record in the East two years in a row with this team doing this thing. You know what I mean? So I think he's just being a stubborn old man right now saying, hey, we'll get it. You know, we're fine. I've done it this way two years in a row, and we've been the best team in the East. But it hasn't won. So I really – it's to the point now, and I know, like, people are talking to Milwaukee. They need to make a change if they want to win it. They're, you're right. The way that the league is going, too, their defense is not – it's not fitting. Like, they – they're just allowing teams to just shoot threes all the time. This has been something they've done. The problem is, though, is that every year as this goes on, 
the the floor for that like the league average from three raises. Like every team gets better at shooting threes. They move the ball better. They shoot them at a better clip. They shoot more of them. So every year, Milwaukee, like Milwaukee right now, they're twenty sixth in three point percentage allowed. They allow thirty nine percent of three point made. That's unbelievable. Like any team shooting against Milwaukee is shooting thirty nine percent. Uh, so yeah. every other game, like in a, in a series, you're you're gonna get beat. You're ju- it's just too much, like too high volatile, like too many high volatile three point shooters out there on good teams. Like I don't trust the like the Nets necessarily from a defensive standpoint to make it all the way there and and for all their like their big three to hold up and defensively can they do it? But like, could you imagine Milwaukee playing against a Nets team where you've got you know Kyrie, Durant, and Harden? Those guys, like, what could they do in a game or two from three point range? And you got Joe Harris too, who's probably Joe the Harris best shooter. Is like yeah, the best the of best all shooter them. in the team. So of I mean, it's them. just they they need a change defensively, mm-hmm. and until yeah, that's realized, and maybe this is just the year where they're just it takes them to realize it. But with the system they have, the system's not going to win, and it needs to be changed. And you you brought up Harden that game against. Phoenix after that I called my buddy and he had the great the best analogy I've ever heard from Harden he goes look he goes he's the guy that just likes to play ball he will go out he'll go to the strip club but you know the next night he's gonna come out and he's gonna produce he'll eat a bunch of hot dogs hamburgers drink five beers but the guy somehow can just run like still play for two hours and you don't know how (laughs) but I mean he's seeing the court he's doing a great job facilitating it's motivating everybody involved and my buddy made a good point he goes if that's Kyrie out there they still lose by 20 absolutely I mean Harden is passing right now and facilitating and getting everyone involved and not forcing a shot something I didn't think he was going to be able to do so props for him he's playing at a really good level right now the hottest team in the NBA right now I mean I guess we talked about the Jazz obviously so they're they're the hottest team and they're they've been so hot for such a long time that you they've kind of become boring how hot they've been and how good they've been it's actually the Portland Trailblazers who have won six in a row now they're eight and two in their last ten they've climbed all the way up to the fourth seed in the west um and I mean anytime we we talk about them you have to start with Dame and this is a guy who's now just under 30 points and uh, just under eight assists a game. He, I think he's another one that in the last few weeks, because they've been winning, he's moved himself into the MVP conversation. Oh, for sure. For sure. He is playing so good. He's averaging 30 points in this little stretch of games they're on. And in cl- close games, well, that is like the clutch that games within, within six points with less than five to go. Portland's 12 and 3 this year. Dame is shooting 50, over 50%, 55% from field goals percentage in in less than 5 to play and over 60% for threes. The level he is playing <laughs> is just it's just insane. And then you look at the big worry obviously is they're shorthanded too. No CJ, no Zach Collins, no Urich and no um Henry Gills. So they have basically their only big man they have is Cantor. And they've been playing the small ball where Simmons, who's their backup point guard, has basically been their big and their rim protector. And surprisingly, I'm not saying they're good defensively, but their defense hasn't been 
that bad as you well they're more think. switchy yeah because yeah. they're they're more like switchable than when you've got um like Nurkic in there he's he's a like a regular big man he's kind of slow he's great offensively and he's fine like he's a nice presence in there defensively but he can't really switch if if you try to stretch him out a little bit he's not quick and Cantor's awful Cantor is by terrible. far the yeah. worst pick and roll defender in the league like a couple years ago when they're um when I think he played for I I forget what playoff series, but the team was just pick and roll on him to death. He just can't defend the pick and roll because he's so slow. Um, and then Dame, back to Dame, he's not forcing the three either at the beginning of the games. He's driving, he's getting to the three throw line a lot more. And then they're basically only playing three off the bench. Mello's average in 13. Simmons, he's shooting 43% from three point land and being their basic rim protector as a point guard. And, uh, Narsing Little is shooting 64% for three. Granted, he doesn't have that many attempts, but he's still, in his limited opportunity, he's aiming to, able to fill it. I mean, if this team can get healthy, which is a big if, and they're the four seed, that could be a dangerous little matchup for, sure. uh, for, Utah. for Utah. Yeah, you're right, because they're diff- that's a team that will bring Gobert out, try to make Gobert guard the perimeter a little bit more, and any of the, like, the I always feel bad because it seems like every year, maybe of the last like four or five years, there's always one stretch of the season where Dame is playing this well, right? Like he'll always have a stretch where he plays MVP level. And then for whatever reason he ends up, I mean, it's just because he's smaller and he has to carry the team. He'll get a little banged up and it won't be like a massive injury. But even last year he was playing so good in the bubble. And then in the Lakers series, they wouldn't have beat them, but he got banged up. And so we couldn't have seen that like the A version of Lilliard maybe win another game for them in that series. This happened a couple years ago. Same thing where it's happened. I think in the playoffs two or three times where after a while he did all the wear and tear on the poor guy for having to do so much and having to really carry this team. I just hope one of these years he can stay healthy uh, long enough to actually you know be in the running for an MVP or be in the running with his team for uh, a title because he's good enough to carry a team there. It's just unfortunate that. He's a point guard. He's smaller. He's got to be healthy. He's got to be able to have all of his lateral quickness, the shooting ability, because if he has that, he can do it. If he doesn't, he becomes a lot easier to defend with his size. Oh, for sure. When he is 100% healthy, he can do it all, and he can get to the rim. He's like Curry. He's very yeah. similar to Curry. But, yeah. I mean, I, he's more physical. He's a better yes. finisher at the rim than Curry. Curry doesn't yes. drive nearly, like, hardly at all. Um, but also, like, when CJ comes back and they can Lillard can rest, they can put him in the corner. Lillard's doing all this while being the primary guy that's facilitating the, the offense through, which is great. I mean, like if it wasn't for what LeBron's doing and Embiid, I mean, he'd be right up there because everyone overlooks my boy Donovan Mitchell. So it's another incredible year. I think oh, he's like, and they announced. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I'm yeah, sorry. Go ahead. They announced the, the Western All Star games. How the hell? Is Luca freaking starter? Yeah, it's that's a crime. Luca has not been close this year, this first half, to as good as Lillard has been. Not even close. I'm glad you mentioned that too, uh, so that way we can announce it too. So the Eastern Conference All Star starters: Kevin Durant, Giannis, Joel Embiid, Kyrie Irving, and Bradley Beal. And the Western Conference starters: LeBron, Jokic, Kawhi, Curry, and Doncic. So. um yeah, I mean, I can't, uh, I can't disagree with you there. You had to feel like 
Lillard had a better half and has had a better last couple weeks, and his team has been better, and they've won more than uh, than Luca. And I think he was a more deserving player, but Luca was the one that everybody was the MVP favorite coming into the year, so he gets all this like all this extra leeway built in, you know. Oh yeah, and I mean like it is basically like a popularity contest in Dallas's, you know, after what happened in the bubble between the Mavericks and the Clippers, and like you said, basically just. More the international vote or whatever too for for someone like you, Luca. You know what I mean. Worldwide, more people know who he is, probably. Oh yeah, and it's just it's it's basically a popularity contest. But with what Dame's doing, it's just and Mitchell for those guys not to be one of them be a starter is just insane to me. Eric Etoff two one sports with uh, another this. Uh, weekend NBA who's hot who's not Segment uh, we're going to hit on all Of the major topics if there's ever uh, anything That you you guys out there that are listening want Me and Eric to discuss please shoot us a Message let us know uh, you know how to, uh, we're Going to tell you in just a second how to follow Eric You know where to follow me on social media let me know Hey Gino can you take a few minutes and talk about um, Our team we love the, the, the T-Wolves can you break something down for us Sure we'll do so, we'll do so just let us know uh, What you'd like for us to discuss we're big NBA fans, and we'll be talking every week about what's been going on uh, each week leading up to our conversation. And uh, this is time for us to end, so that way both of us can kick back and watch the the rest of this uh, Lakers versus Nets game that it just started uh, a few minutes ago. Eric, anything else you wanna you wanna mention before we get your plugs in? Um, Colts aren't winning anything until they get a left tackle. I mean, I know <laughs> they got Wentz, but <laughs> there we go. They don't, right? have, they don't have a left tackle, so let's kind of pump the brakes. With the Carson, the Carson Wentz winning a Super Bowl in Indianapolis, low. If yeah, if you get a left tackle there, um, it's a better. It'll probably be a better overall spot for him as far as uh, being uh, competitive and 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 having an opportunity to win. But uh, they do have some holes to fill, and we'll Cause see. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah, their left tackle, I, I don't mean to tangent, but their no, left tackle retired. He was sacked fifty times, one hundred seventy nine times in his five year career, and. I think mentally he's just gone and those hits are adding up. And if they don't get that left tackle, I mean, it's going to be a long season in Indy for him. Etoff, 2 1 Sports. Uh, where can we follow you on social media? Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Etoff, 2 1 Sports. Um, for all the sports spinning stuff, I have a couple accounts on Instagram at Etoff, 2 1 Sports. And then I have this other one at Etoff, 2 1 Sports underscore fantasy. Where I just do like five things from yesterday, recap the sports day. Uh, this week I'm doing my top 25 NFL free agents. Next week will be fantasy football rankings for next year. And my website, etoff 21 Sports, have where you can find the link to my podcast and the little blogs about betting and sports I write I can be found there too. Eric, thank you so much, buddy. Look forward to, uh, to talking to you next week here again on That's What You Said. Me too, man. I'll talk to you then. Thanks, Eric. Stay safe over there, buddy. Stay warm. Eric, Etoff, 2-1 Sports. Don't go anywhere, folks. We'll be back here with plenty more on That's What G Said. Horse racing fans, many of us have been using the DRF, the daily racing form, for years. Studying the races, keeping up to date on news with all the articles. I remember looking for a copy at the local liquor store or picking one up at the local racetrack, wherever I was going. Now it's even easier and cheaper than ever to use DRF with DRF.com and the newly optimized DRF mobile. You can get all the tracks that you want to bet and handicap. 
past performances that are mobile optimized for on-the-go handicapping on your phone. So you go to drf.com from your mobile device, no additional cost. Tap the calendar icon on the top left. It opens all of the options for past performances and for the tools that are available. One click to bet now and DRF bets. Get real-time odds and scratches on race day. You can tap on any horse and you get those same DRF past performances that you're familiar with with a larger font for your mobile display. One click to formulator for charts, for replays if you get the formulator version. And even on the classic past performances, you get the home screen with horses, with odds, with buyers. You get a lifetime buyer speed figure graph. You can rotate your phone for the best view. And any horse that you click on, you'll see the running lines. You can easily move from horse to horse. The same data as those traditional classic DRF past performances. You get an interactive format, which is... Very similar to the DRF Classic version that you're used to on the desktop. Every card includes live data updated instantly with those scratches. And so you get the accessibility from desktop to phone, cross-device functionality. You can take your notes and save them from one device to the next and then access your account on any of your devices. On-the-go handicapping and wagering multiple formats to view you got the overview page with recent speed figures current days odds easy access to expert selections and analysis you got the buyer speed figure graph with lifetime buyer speed figures and chart notes for every horse and you got those traditional drf pass performances that are just newly optimized for your mobile phones they are constantly upgrading improving and making everything easier for you to get your handicapping done at drf.com big thanks like always to eric who helps us out so much here on that's what g said podcast make sure to give him a follow on uh, all the social media stuff he has a great podcast great website blogs and uh, tons of good information for all of the sports fans out there let's move on over and talk a little horse racing and uh let's talk about the stable dual schedule coming up over the next few days so lots of tracks canceled keep in mind but there are plenty of opportunities still at stable dual friday StableDuel.com. You can find out the whole contest schedule there if you want, or if you just download the app on your phone, on your uh, iPad. When you go to look at the contest, you can see what contests are available for you. So Friday, you've got Gulfstream Park, a $100 top three. You got a $2 contest. You got Tampa, a 10 times booster that's only five bucks to get in. You got Golden Gate, a $10 contest. And you've got Santa Anita with a $25 top 10 contest. So a bunch of different tracks and a bunch of different contests on Friday. Over on Saturday, you've got Gulfstream Park, a $50 contest for $5,000. you got a $5 contest if the $50 is a little too much for you. At Tampa, there's a $10 contest. There's uh, Sam Houston, that one's canceled. Golden Gate, free ride. You've got uh, Santa Anita with two different options for you, a 5 and a 50 there. So Gulfstream, Tampa, Golden Gate, and Santa Anita, all options for you on Saturday. And I'm going to get to uh, one of the cool bonuses about Saturday in just a second. Sunday, you've got Gulfstream with a $12 contest, a $50 triple up. You've got a Tampa free ride. You've got $10 contest at Golden Gate. And then you've got a $5 at Santa Anita and $100 at Santa Anita. That's on Sunday. So if you're you know, kind of wondering, usually Stable Duel every week sort of has like a big one, a big contest, some um, theme. This week, it's the Coast to Coast Challenge. Saturday, Stable Duel is hosting its first multi-track bonus opportunity. Two contests on Saturday that had $50 buy-ins with a $5,000 guaranteed prize pool. One of them's at Gulfstream, 
one of them at Santa Anita. And we are going to talk about races from both of those tracks here on That's What G Said following in just a few minutes. Saturday, we give out some plays for Gulfstream. Saturday, we give out some plays for Santa Anita. So if you enter in both of those contests, there will be a $100 bonus to each player who finishes in the top 10 of each. So if you finish top 10 in Santa Anita, top 10 in Gulfstream, you're going to already be winning the prize money for whatever position you finish in, plus a $100 bonus just for getting involved. So uh, just for you know finishing in both, in both of them, just for getting involved in both and finishing top 10. So how cool is that? You get that added incentive, you know, you would have already gotten the money for finishing top 10, but they're going to give you a little $100 bonus because you played in both. You finished in the top 10 in both. Gulfstream card has the grade 3 Royal Delta. Santa Anita has the grade 2 Buena Vista. Uh, one bonus per player regardless of the entry. So check it out. The Coast to Coast Challenge on Saturday. Another big stable dual weekend coming up. And... Speaking of Saturday, let's talk about Gulfstream Park on Saturday. So I have uh, some plays at Gulfstream Park. Uh, 1st, 3rd, 6th, 7th, 11th are the races I wanted to discuss a little bit. uh, So let's get the past performances out for February the 20th, and let's look at race number 1. We're looking at the 9 in here, Ginger on my mind, who has really been competitive at this level in her last couple starts, and I think she proved that she fits very nicely here. She doesn't have to be way out of it. She's sort of a mid-pack to kind of a tactical horse, and any of the last three efforts, just a repeat of one of those type of efforts would have her right on the wire. I like the fact that Gaffleone is jumping back aboard, and I actually think that the outside draw is sort of a good spot for her to kind of have some options, be able to tuck in if she needs, or be able to kind of stay in the clear and, and figure out where she wants to fall in. I, I hope she doesn't get hooked wide again, but she shouldn't have to be too far out of it. The number nine, Ginger on my mind. Uh, let's move to race number three in your Gulfstream Park on Saturday, looking at the uh, the number eight. And what's nice about a horse like Ginger on my mind, if you're playing Stable Duel at six to one, that's it's not going to cost you all that much uh, with the six to one morning line. It'll, it'll cost you 5,000 off your Stable Duel lineup. In the third race at Gulfstream Park, made in 50s, five furlongs on the turf course, Bree Hazel has only raced three times. Her career debut, she hooked a very nice next out winner named Zajil, and then she tried the grass for her next two starts. And in both of those races on the grass, she had a little bit of trouble at the start. So she's been her own worst enemy. But she could stalk really nicely. She missed the break on January the 28th. And then she was in between horses. She was three deep. She was in towards the rear. And then she's chasing the top two who end up finishing 1-2. And they were 1-2 all the way around. She had actually moved up really nicely into, uh, into contention and then flattened out late. I thought it was a much better than looks race on paper for the number eight, Bree Hazel, in race number three at Gulfstream Park on Saturday. So uh, if we can get anything around, you know, seven to two ish, that's that feels about right for uh, for Bree Hazel. Let's move into race number six for Saturday. Another horse who's sort of like that mid-priced horse who I think is is a nice fit. And that's the number two, Cove Blue, who's going to be taking a pretty sizable drop in class and returning to a track where he has previously won. He should be really right in the mix early on. Um, To his inside, the one has a little bit of speed. I actually think Cove Blue probably has some like a little classier speed, might be a little bit better on the front end. Uh, Towards the outside, you have a couple horses that maybe are a little tactical. You know, uh, wouldn't be shocked to see a horse like the the six 
like pressing or, or close to it. But I think the two might be able to steal this race. Cove Blue on the drop in class, trying to win this thing on the front end or very close to it. The number two, Cove Blue, in race number six. Let's use that one in all exotics. We'll make a win wager if we can get around uh, three to one or so. We move to race number seven. The number eight, Honorable, is now going to go first start off the claim for Mike Maker after having a really bad trip last time out. It was tough start, then got hooked wide. Just not a trip that's going to win on a turf course. Honorable, a must-use in all exotics for me. Anything around five to two makes sense, and maybe even a horse to single if you're kind of or put on top in some uh, in some exotics. The number eight, honorable in race number seven. Let's move to race number eleven, which is the stakes race on the card at Gulfstream Park for Saturday. And uh, the play for me in this one in race number eleven is the number three, Eris two who is probably an exotic single in the Royal Delta. She has just been in incredible form since coming into the Delacour barn. She always had some talent. She showed some ability, but she's just been a, a brand new animal. Uh, and she is three for three now, undefeated for the new connections, coming off that long, long layoff. She didn't race from March of 2019 to October of 2020. She won first off the bench, and uh, she has been good in her last two starts since She's got that nice running style where she's not going to be on the lead, but she's going to be pressing right there and, and pretty close to it throughout. So uh, I think she'll be in the mix, and she's going to be tough with Irad aboard for Delacour. The number three, Eris 2, a late exotic single for me. So the play's at Gulfstream Park for Saturday. In the first, the number nine, Ginger on my mind. We won about, you know, seven to two or so. In the, the third, the number eight, Bree Hazel. We won about three to one. In the sixth, the number two, Cove Blue. Three, same thing, kind of in that seven to two-ish range. Honorable, we don't want any less than five to two in race number seven on the eight. Honorable. And in the 11th, the number three, Eris Two, will be a, a late exotic single. That is Gulfstream Park for Saturday. Let's move over to Laurel. Laurel had a card from last week that was uh, that was canceled and that was uh, rescheduled for this Saturday. There are stakes races, I think, in races three through eight. So we're going to jump into them. We'll, we'll uh, head through those. I'll give out a couple plays, a couple races that I think might be a little chalky. We'll kind of uh, uh, just briefly touch on. But get the past performances out for Laurel Park for Saturday. Saturday at Laurel Park. Uh, let's get to the third. February the 20th. They're going to go a mile in the Miracle Wood. I thought the one, Tiz Mandate, very interesting. So in his most recent try, he was squeezed back at the start. He ended up last. He was eighth. He was in the two path, about 10 lengths off. He ended up kind of gradually moving up to the six, seven spot on the outside. He kept in the clear. He actually closed really, really well. Now he's going to save ground. He's going to get a little more distance to work with from seven furlongs to a mile. He's had that gradual progression from six to seven, to one more race at seven. Now you'll go a mile. Um, and there's tons more pace to chase in here for Tiz Mandate, who couldn't get to Kenny, had a notion last time out. But look, Kenny's got speed. Silent Service, who's right next door to Kenny, stretching out from six and six and a half to a mile. You'd have to imagine that that guy's going to be close. Subsidized is not going to be too, uh, subsidized is not going to be too far out of it. The number seven. You got the three, the King Cheek. You got the four, the May the Horse Be With You. Both of them are going to be forwardly placed and showing some speed. It's not like the two is exactly slow. He also has the ability to be close to it. If the one can just take back, save some ground, and make a big late run, there should be plenty of pace for this guy to chase in race number three at Laurel Park on Saturday. That's the number one, Tiz Mandate, who we want about five to one or so if we can uh, make a win wager on that one. 
We got the John B. Campbell stakes in race number four. I do think Bankit is going to be pretty tough in here. I might hook the eight up in some exotics with the number five awesome DJ, who I, I like the pattern for this one coming in. Two starts back, you can excuse that last race. Um, look at the races prior to that. The runner-up effort behind Zendin and the third-place effort behind Harper's first ride. Those are both really good. Uh, awesome DJ likes it here at Laurel Park. is proven nicely at the distance, but Bankit is no doubt the one to beat to me. Very, very going to be very tough in here. So I would use the, uh, the five and the eight in any exotics in race number four. In the fifth race, I thought the seven, Wicked Awesome, is as honest of a mare as you will find. Um, she was behind Eris 2, who we just talked about, who's running over at Gulfstream Park. And I really like Eris 2, and Wicked Awesome was only beaten a length behind Eris 2 last time out. Um, this is not a, nearly as strong of a group, um, dropping out of that grade three effort. So I think a, a really nice spot for the number seven, Wicked Awesome, Wicked Awesome, number seven here. In uh, in race number five, the hundred thousand dollar Nelly Morse, the seven, proven loves the track and is pretty versatile too. You'll probably see this one like fifth, fourth or fifth early, more of a mid pack type, but um, can show different dimensions if need be. I was extremely impressed with the winner uh, of. Uh, the winner, I'm getting a little ahead of myself, horse, with the horse I like in race number six, who was the winner of uh, of a race over at Parks, and you know, you never know, sometimes those Parks races don't transfer out of Parks all that well, but Salt Plague in the sixth race, which is the wide country stakes, wow, was she impressive, she broke well, she settled fifth, she's about four lengths off, she moved up inside to just behind the leaders, she angled around four wide, and went right on by, it was an easy victory, um, could have won by as, as many lengths as she wanted to. Salt Plague. Looked like they were sort of gearing down to and saving something for uh, for later. The number two, Salt Plague, we'll be using here. Anything over five to two, I'm going to make a win wager on the deuce. In race number seven, the grade three, Barbara Fritchie. You have two graded stakes races coming up in the seventh and the eighth. I thought the... Uh, I thought the, you know, there were some logicals. Sharp star, I wouldn't really talk you off. Um, obviously, don't let don't let sweets fool you. And hello, beautiful, very logical. Wouldn't talk you off uh, any of them. But as far as a maybe a little outside the box horse, the number four is Stelio Talentoso. Just doesn't run a bad race, and she's been at seven furlongs three times. Two of those races, she was behind very very nice horses in four graces and in Bernie. And she's now going to be cutting back from a mile and a sixteenth to seven furlongs. She's got the the tack, that style, that route speed now turning back to an elongated sprint that really fits perfect. I think she's going to run very, very well here at a nice price. If we get around five or six to one, that's a good price on the number four, Stelio Talentoso in the seventh at Laurel, the grade three, run happy, Barbara Fritchie. The eighth race is the final stakes at Laurel on Saturday, and it is also a graded stakes. It is the grade three General George Funny Guy. Will no doubt be tough in here. But Majestic Dunhill, if you can just excuse his last start, he had some trouble uh, at the gate. At the gate, Two starts back in the grade three fall highway. It was again like bouncing around uh, before the start and just uncomfortable in those two. Look at the two races prior to that, the Bold Ruler win and uh, the optional claiming runner-up effort right before that. Those are really, really nice races. I think this guy is no doubt capable of jumping up with a a race good enough to beat this group, 
and because he has a couple clunkers in the last few, you'll get a much better price on him than you should or than you would have uh, had he come into this race with a, a nice runner-up effort, something like that. So Majestic Dunhill, who is one at Laurel, who is no stranger for seven furlongs, that's the play for me. Anything around six to one or so, I'll make a win wager on Majestic Dunhill. So Saturday at Laurel Park, in the third, the number one, Tis Mandate. In the fifth, the number seven, Wicked Awesome. In the sixth, the number two, Salt Plague. In the seventh, the number four, Estilio Talentoso. And in the eighth, Majestic Dunhill. That is Laurel Park, the eighth, the number four, Majestic Dunhill. I didn't, didn't say four, did I? Uh, that's Saturday, February the 20th, over at Laurel Park. Let's get you over to uh, talk some Santa Anita in just a moment. First, we have to talk a little bit about OldSmokeClothing.com. Old Smoke Clothing is uh, a, a coming together of, of a couple friends to, who wanted to develop quality clothing and merchandise that horse racing fans and those who love the atmosphere and lifestyle of racing will be able to enjoy. They, they give you an innovative line of high-quality products rooted in the iconic symbols of racing and the racetrack experience. I mean... Old Smoke, they're actually named after Old Smoke John Morrissey, who was the founding father of Saratoga Racecourse, who is one of the most interesting characters in all of American history. Go look this guy up, Old Smoke John Morrissey, uh, just an incredible figure. And This is a great company that will give you the opportunity to show the horse racing fan in you. We're talking about... Horse racing t-shirts, hats, zip-ups, quality clothing, hoodies, tank tops, long sleeves. They give you an opportunity with the Old Smoke Clubhouse for a $500 annual fee. You get four packages delivered to you where you can really get exclusive gear and interact with other horse racing fans. In the Old Smoke Clubhouse, each quarterly package will include an exclusive t-shirt only available to members, custom horse racing gift, and, and other package fillers. You'll also get a piece of headwear exclusively for members. You get a piece of outerwear exclusively for members. You get 20% off all of your orders at OldSmokeClothing.com and access to the Old Smoke Clubhouse online forum. And remember, at Old Smoke, they also have custom designs. You can get custom designs of whatever you want, um, funny things that you and your friends say, uh, a cool slogan, a nickname, anything at all, oldsmokeclothing.com. And how about this? When you use the promo code G-I-N-O, it'll get you free shipping on your order. Promo code G-I-N-O. Maybe you're a fan of Tis the Law, Midnight Bisu, Authentic, She Dares the Devil. Represent the horse racing fan. Great gifts for friends, family members, anyone that you know uh, would, would love a t-shirt, a hat, something that says horse racing. Don't forget about that promo code G-I-N-O. Gets you free shipping on your order. Let's bounce over to Santa Anita for Saturday. Get those past performances out for February the 20th, and we'll go right to race number one, Santa Anita, on Saturday. Mile and an eighth in the opener, first level allowance on the turf course. I thought the three Hollywood girl is going to get a massive jock upgrade with uh, Juan Hernandez jumping aboard, who has been riding as well as anyone out there in Southern California. This mare was just up for third late in her most recent try. She just kind of sat inside. I think with Juan jumping aboard, you're going to get a, a little more of an aggressive ride. Um, Hollywood Girl, the number three, anything around three to one or so makes sense in that opener at Santa Anita. 
in race number three. Maybe not a horse that we're going to be playing to win, but uh, the number six Nobu, the first-time starter for Simon Callahan, is a little bit sneaky in here. Three-year-old first-timer, doesn't have a monster pedigree or anything, but she was a, a pretty big purchase price uh, for a horse who doesn't have a monster pedigree uh, when she was a two-year-old. So last year, uh, the six Nobu, Let's give a look to Nobu, who I think is going to come out running here in race number three at Santa Anita. Throw her into your early pick fives. In race number five, it looks like the number six Shadow Sphinx is a an exotic single in here. This is a really honest gelding. He's won six of his last nine starts with two legitimate excuses. If you go to the bottom of, of his page and you can see... Um, the December 30th race, which is two up from the bottom of his past performances, if you're just looking at like his last 10, the December 30th race, going six and a half furlongs on the turf against uh, 50 claimers, you win. Then you race on January the 27th, and that is a race that sends you to the bench for a full year. So put a line right through that January 27th, 2019 race. Comes back off a year layoff and wins. Then is sent to the bench from oh, more than a year layoff. Comes comes back from off the layoff from January of 2019 to June of 2020 and wins. Then uh, comes back a couple months later, going long on the grass. Doesn't really fire that day. That's it. Every other race has been really good, and you have legitimate excuses for those couple poor performances. Six of the last nine, two legit excuses, and one where you just kind of didn't really fire off the bench. Um, sharp, honest, loves this turf course. I think a good single in some of the uh, exotics there. However, you're playing the card at Santa Anita on uh, on Saturday in race number five. Let's move to race number seven here. Another horse who I think maybe uh, an exotics, a late exotic single. Number two, Mucho Unusual. I mean, just toss her Breeders' Cup. What else do we want from this mare? She is so nice. She's going to give it her all each and every time. She's going to probably have to run down Charmaine's Mia. But I think... Because of horses like Nasty showing a little bit of speed, Sedamar will be forwardly placed, going to Vegas will be forwardly placed, Bohemian Bourbon from the inside is going to be flashing a little bit of speed also, uh, especially stretching out from six furlongs. So I think there's going to be enough towards the outside. Heather's Gray is another one who uh, could be close to it. There should be enough pace for... Mucho unusual to be able to carve out a nice a nice trip right behind them with that sort of uh, style where she wants to sit just maybe a, a length to a couple lengths behind the leaders. The number two, Mucho unusual, a late exotic single, and if she's anything over five to two, we'll make a win wager on her in race number seven at Santa Anita. In the ninth race at Santa Anita on Saturday, the number seven Symphonic is going to be my play there. So he came into the Bob Hess Jr. barn on January the 23rd, and he went six furlongs on the turf. It was his first start in just over two months. He was a close-up fourth early on. He was inside. He was in a little bit tight. He was waiting, uh, but he was loaded. He was traveling really well. He, he didn't have anywhere to go. He tried to angle off the rail, but he just couldn't make up ground on the top two after they had separated a little bit. It was solid. It was his first try for Hess. It was his first try um, in two two plus months, it was his first try over this course, coming from Churchill out here to Southern California. There are plenty of reasons to believe that Symphonic can improve in this start, and I think he's going to be really, really tough. Anything around five to one, we'll make a win wager there on the number seven Symphonic. So at Santa Anita on Saturday, horses that we're looking at in the opener, the number three Hollywood Girl. 
when you were in a thing around 3-1. to one. Throw the number 6 Nobu in your pick 5 in the 3rd. Uh, in the 5th race, I thought the 6 Shadow Sphinx may be a single for me in some of the exotics. In the seven, the num- uh, in the seventh, the number two mucho unusual will be another horse that I could single in some exotics, and if I get around five to two or so, I'll make a win wager. And in the ninth, the number seven symphonic will make a win wager on that one if we can get anything around five to one. One of the most stressful events in, in life is is moving, relocating, and all of the the factors that go into that process. A lot of different things that you don't really want to have to worry about yourself. But I know someone who can make your life a lot easier and can help you out in that department. I'm talking about Cindy Carava, full service realtor. Her website, C-I-N-D-Y. C-A-R-A-V-A dot com. Now, as a full service realtor, she can help you out in many different ways. Selling, purchasing, leasing. She can help you find vendors like handyman, painters, landscapers, gardeners that she's used in her own home and homes. She can help you get pre-approved for a home loan. If you need help, she'll connect you with the lender that she works closely with and can highly recommend. She covers all parts of the San Gabriel Valley, parts of North San Diego County, Del Mar, Solana Beach, Rancho Santa Fe. But if you need help and you're outside of the state of California, she can help you too. If you send her a message, let her know where you are. She will put you in touch with someone in the area who can help you look at whatever you need, who can help you with whatever you need. Hey, maybe you're just curious to see how much your home is worth. She can do a free market analysis of your home's value just to let you know. You can find out information about her on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, reviews about her on Yelp and Zillow, or you know, cindycarava.com, that website. It'll have all of her listings, um, some of the homes that she's sold, all of the great information you need about Cindy there. C-A-R-A-V-A, that's the last name, Cindy Carava. I've known her personally for almost a decade. She is one of the most honest and genuine people you will ever meet. She's the exact type of person you can trust with all of your real estate needs. Get to cindycarava.com right now. Make sure to let her know that Gino sent you. Tell her hello. Cindy, uh, such a great friend and uh, does such amazing work. Let's close this out with the old wrestling rewatch. We've got WWF In Your House 16, which was Canadian Stampede. So we're heading back to 1997. If you were a wrestling fan around this time, or I mean, most wrestling fans probably know the show I'm talking about. It is one of the best pay-per-views ever. The crowd is unbelievable. It's a short show. It's less than two hours. There are only four matches on the card. Triple H versus Mankind. Great Suzuki versus Takamichi Noku. Undertaker versus Vader. Then you've got the five-on-five main event. The Hart Foundation versus the Team USA, which is Ken Shamrock, Goldust, the Legion of Doom, and Stone Cold. Uh, And on the Hart Foundation side, you've got Bret Hart, uh, Brian Pillman, British Bulldog, Nyhart, Jim the Anvil, and uh, and Owen Hart. So, In Your House, Canadian Stampede 1997. A great, great show where the Canadians were the the heroes, the uh, wrestlers from the United States. They were the villains. And this was during 1997 when this big storyline was happening, when... We had Team Canada who got booed everywhere in the USA, but were, they were the uh, the conquering heroes everywhere in Canada. Love this show. Darren Zocali and Andrew Champagne join me for the old wrestling rewatch. Oh, yeah. Old wrestling rewatch with Andrew Champagne and Darren Zocali. <laughs> This week's old wrestling rewatch will take us to the middle of 1997, right when the WWF, now WWE, was starting to to turn. Things were starting to get hot. This angle, this 
team, the Hart Foundation, Team Canada angle that ran through a lot of uh, 1997 and was kind of like invoking Steve Austin and then got the Steve Austin McMahon stuff started. This was some of the biggest um, and some of the most important and the hottest storylines in the history of the company. They would roll into really the Attitude Era. This was sort of the, uh, the jump start of it all right here. Uh, this is an awesome show. It's a great short rewatch of a show uh if you're looking for a fun one a show that has absolutely no bad on it because um everything is solid to to very very good the crowd is hot they are in canada in calgary alberta in the middle of the rodeo um so it's just a perfect setting for a wrestling show especially when you have these hometown heroes like the hearts so uh dz andrew champagne along board like always darren uh what are your overall thoughts of 1997 canadian stampede uh it's a great show it, it really is it's uh it's a very easy watch it, it's a very fast show but uh it, i mean it's not for uh lack of content or lack of excitement um you know, the main event, it has a WrestleMania feel to it. The crowd is sensational. The entire match from start to finish, you feel like you're going 1,000 miles an hour. They never take their foot off the accelerator. And even the three matches prior, they offer different things for different folks, but they're all good in their own right. And it's an interesting show because of how it flips the heels and the faces in the main event. It's an interesting show to see how the crowd reacts to some people how they don't react to others. It's weird to not have a road warrior pop when LOD comes out. It's one of the stranger things that I've seen uh, in terms of watching a wrestling rewatch back, but it's just, it, it, the, the, I would just call it fun. It's just a good old fun show that was just really enjoyable. And the crowd, especially for the main event, really made it even, even that much more fun. Darren hit on most of what I was going to say, but one word that I'll add to it is, it's quick. It's an hour and 45 minutes. It's a very short watch. It's a breezy watch. There's no filler. There's nothing bad on it. Everything they do works and works well. You almost wish they would have done all of this on a bigger show as yeah. opposed to going four hours and stretching it out and having these things that were just complete and total filler. But this was a really, really fun show, and I'm looking forward to going through it. So, you know, we're at 97, the world's sort of changing. People don't love that white meat baby face anymore. Remember, on the opposite side, people hated the good guy version of Hulk Hogan at this point. That's why Hogan's a bad guy now. So the fans were also in early 97, and it was even before that, they were sort of turning against the white meat uh, baby face Bret Hart. They just weren't really standing by him. And he he was becoming, you know, this this to this like version of a, a character that we really didn't see too often where he's a heel in the United States. He's a baby face everywhere else. Uh, this show is the week of that big stampede rodeo in Calgary week long event. And I just wonder why WWE doesn't do this more go and host a show and take advantage of a big, a big festival. Like, I mean, Super Bowl week. Why don't they have a show down there? You know what I'm saying? Like, like when there's going to be a lot of people in the areas to try to take advantage of, of things like that, just feels like perfect. Big carnivals, big festivals all over the place. Wrestling is, is a carny show. It's just made for it. Um, so remember one thing, too. 
Uh, Brett had a bad knee injury uh, for about two months um, following winning the title leading up to this. So this was kind of a tag match to ease him back in also. And this was the last ever two-hour WWF pay-per-view. Andrew mentioned that it's a really quick watch. Following this, they were all three hours to three hours plus. So this was literally the last one that was uh, under that that three-hour sort of threshold. This is by far my favorite ever voiceover guy in the WWF. It, it just sounds so much like a TV show intro. It, it sounds very heavy, very important. All through the 97 big shows, um, this guy was introducing them, and it just made them all feel so important. And uh, we get the big pyro, the big fireworks, and Vince screaming, Welcome, everyone, to Calgary, Alberta, Canada! Welcome to In Your House, Canadian Stack Pete. So we know it's a big show. We get the pyro, we got the uh, Vince screaming, we're ready to rock here. Then he gets into announcer voice, and uh, we got Vince, Jerry the King, and JR. This is a team that I like, too. I think they were a good team, because Vince could kind of throw, like, set it up and take a step back, and then JR could do a little more, and him and him and King could kind of bounce off of each other. Um, the announcers are all, they're decked out in their rodeo gear, cowboy hats, dressed up like uh, like cowboys. And we get started for a very quick, fun show. First match, Triple H. With China versus Mankind, Vince actually says that she is 200 pounds. And uh, we get the build-up package for their matches is voiced over by Michael PSAs. And uh, and we Triple H enters, and then we get the uh, and then we get the voiceover uh, for the package. It's a rematch of the King of the Ring finals from a month earlier. Um, I only have one gripe about really about the show. It just we're like six plus minutes in before the bell rings on the first match. I'd like to be a little, a little quicker um, in before the bell rings for the the first match. You know, I, two, three minutes would nice would be nice. Um, Mankind goes right after Triple H early, hits a double arm DDT, and then he kind of mocks Triple H with a curtsy, uh, big elbow off the ring apron, and Vince says, Vince says, the delts on China. And King says, what? She said, and Vince says, the deltoids. Um, Mankind tosses Triple H into the turnbuckle And uh, up and over to the outside Triple H tries to leave and walk down the aisle Mankind catches him suplexes on the steel ramp JR calls Mankind the Prime Minister of Parts Unknown Which I loved uh, Mankind locks in the mandible claw But China lays in a right hand to Mick We get a crazy spot where Triple H tosses Foley um, to China outside the ring She power slams Mankind into the ring steps Legs first Then she distracts the ref While uh, Triple H uses the chair to his legs Triple H then goes after the leg Really good uh, work focusing on the leg here Figure 4 Mankind fires back But he's really selling that leg And he counters a pedigree He gets thrown over into the turnbuckle He bounces back Falls into, a cro- uh, falls into the crotch of Triple H And both men are back up uh, Getting towards the end here Mankind with a big thigh to the the face of Triple H in the corner. Triple H gets hung outside, uh, upside down on the ropes by the legs, and Mankind with the elbow. Pile driver for a close two. Uh, we get the jump clothesline. Both men over the top rope, that famous one from Mick Foley. And then China getting involved again, stops Mick from using a chair. She clotheslines Mankind. They battle outside the ring. They battle into the crowd. It ends up being a double countout. They're actually battling in the penalty box of the hockey setup. You know what? For a double countout, this is probably about as good as you'll get. They continue to brawl in the crowd post-match. 
The crowd doesn't even hate this ending because these two guys just keep brawling for, you know, three minutes post-match. And then all through the night, we're going to check in with them. So we understand why they're doing this, DZ. It's not like it's WrestleMania and it's a double DQ. It's the middle of, uh, of, a, of a very long feud that these guys had that really got them both over and elevated to uh, fully, you know, to back at that main event level and Triple H to the near main event level. This was fun. These two guys had a lot of chemistry, and um, yeah, for like for a double DQ or a DQ finish, this is about as good as you'll see. Yeah, I don't have any issue with the finish, considering where they were at this point in the feud and what was still to come. Um, I thought it was a highly entertaining match. I would say in the neighborhood of three and a half stars is not over exaggerating in terms of the quality of the match. Uh, you know, I think it's it did what it needed to do. Mankind was pretty much beating the hell out of Triple H. Uh, early on in the match, um, the you know falling into Hunter's crotch uh, was hysterical. Um, the power slam, you know, so, the, Mick takes bumps sometimes that you don't know if they went the way it was designed to go. And this is one of those bumps. I don't know if his legs were supposed to crash into it's the stairs. Brutal. Yeah. If they were, good for them because my God, it was a sick spot. If they weren't, great job adapting to what actually happened and making the leg part of the match. Either way, brilliant stuff. Um, there was one funny, uh, <laughs> there was one funny uh, comment from Vince where after Mankind hits Triple H with a pile driver, they ended up going out to the floor. And you talked about China hits Mankind with a clothesline, and Vince says, "Oh man, Mankind is getting it from both ends." <laughs> And I just had a laugh. Um, you <laughs> up too many visuals in my head. I yeah. Guess. Um, you know, but yeah, you have a, a couple of different crotch shots. So things are getting a little bit dirty. Obviously, you know, China's getting involved from the outside. It really covers everything it's supposed to cover. It sets up the, the feud to continue. And these guys just continue to beat the hell out of each other basically throughout the show all over the, uh, the stampede. So I, I thought it was a great opener. Really enjoyed it. Good stuff. And it set things up for the future. I liked this match. You guys mentioned the finish. Yes, it made sense as part of the angle, but as part of the match, I had a little bit of a problem with it. They allow all sorts of stuff with China, stuff that's in direct view of the ref in some cases, and it doesn't get called or officiated or anything like that. Ending in a double countout seemed a little bit weak to me. I think if you wanted to do a schmaz finish, you do something with China to where maybe she saves Triple H, and then they have to do the cage match at SummerSlam as a result to keep her out of it, which is where they wound up going anywhere. Having said that, this was still a pretty good match. Triple H was not a finished product at this point, but you could tell he was getting there. And Mankind at this point was emerging as somebody who wasn't just the guy taking ridiculous bumps in ridiculous matches. He was a guy that had a brilliant mind for the business. And Triple H is very quick to mention that Mick Foley did a lot to help him get over. Matches like this are a reason why. Yeah, you know, there, Mick's got to run in, in some of these in-your-house matches. He's got the one, and we'll do eventually one time, I think it's called Mind Games with Shawn Michaels, where they have like a four to four and a half star awesome match for the title um, in 96. He, you know, we just, we think of him as the guy that goes to the cell, but he could go, he could work in the ring. And uh, this was a really good match from Mick as uh, we got a hot opener to start 
Just a note, I just so many signs in a hot crowd. That's just one thing that you notice, like how many damn signs there were all over the place here in uh, in 1997. And we get video of the Stampede Parade floats, people packing the streets. We got a WWE float, superstars uh, coming on it. Miss Calgary, Diana Smith, Brett's sister. Um, there was a one mile line of people waiting for Bret Hart's autograph. He waited to sign every one of them. See Andrew, what a great guy this guy is that me and DZ love. We uh, we got a white hat ceremony, a tug of war contest. We see all the uh, the footage from. All uh, the events at the uh, stampede and the rodeo. Point of order. Point of order. <laughs> okay. Are we entirely sure that Miss Calgary Stampede was on the level? <laughs> I'm calling real? for an investigation real? right now. <laughs> was it a real award? Was it just a, a, a and like oh she's coming we're gonna give her this or was it like hey the only people are allowed to vote on this award is the Hart family? You it's know, entirely like, possible, but I this? smell collusion. Isn't the Hart family like 77% of the population of Calgary to begin that's with? All of them. That's all of them. That's all of them. That's literally the whole You know, I'm place. not even going to say anything because I don't want the ghost of Stu Hart visiting me in my sleep. You guys have fun with that. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. Stu, old crotchety Stu. But this I'm is just going to take your arm and you're going to bend it like this. You just apply a little pressure. Ah! Ah! <laughs> he just... This was a great night for Stu, though. He had to be glowing in this night, because and, and you know what? They WWF did him well this night. They did they did him and his family well. Like how many not people? Not to the loved... old not to the old uh, territory. It was cool. Yeah, right. And what's funny? It's like just kissing the fe- the ass of the Hart family about five months before they were, he's about to bend <laughs> Brett over and just send him packing. It's just so funny to see right here. But um, we get the uh. The backstage promo with the Hart Foundation, Michael's PS, Michael P.S. Hayes says their entire reputation is on the line uh, being at home. Stone Cold tries to interrupt them backstage, which is just such a great Stone Cold move. Like trying to go after these four team of like, what, five guys? They got like six guys in their locker room all by himself. But uh, how, how cool is this? You know, we're in Canada, so Brett is now a babyface. He says, hey, we don't want five on one. We want five on five in the ring. That's where we get the job done. And that's that's what always still made me as the ten year old like this version of Brett because um, even like he's he wasn't full heel he would do slimy stuff and cheat but he was still solid in the ring and he he had his reasons to complain he thought he was getting screwed out of the title all throughout the year he thought he was the man and he thought the fans turned on him so as a kid it made sense to me I was like always mom why are they booing Brett what's going on it doesn't make sense. I don't know. Why the hell are you asking me about wrestling, Gino? I just pay for this stuff. Stop getting me involved. Uh, I don't think Carol was too uh, too concerned about uh, Bret Hart and the, the fans not loving him anymore. But um, we get, you know, it, this is pretty solid. And it, it's DZ, I think, again, just kind of the nod to the... It's so easy to go somewhere where there's already going to be a bunch of people in town and then just, hey, on this night at this place in town we need to fill an arena not that hard to try to direct a bunch of people that are there already over this is a great call by wwf to do this and take advantage of this event yeah very smart uh very smart marketing very smart to realize where you are what's going on and and to build the storyline into it the way they did just made it even an even bigger draw to you know make the focus around your canadian heroes taking on these big bad evil americans led by their slimy new uh, you know, a face of the of the franchise and Steve Austin. So, uh, yeah, it it is a job well done. 
it's it, 97 obviously is one of the most interesting years in the history of the company. The heel slash face back and forth of Brett, what goes on throughout the year. There's actually even a mention uh, during the night of the fact that there was a camera crew there filming a documentary on Brett, which of course yeah. would end up being the, the Wrestling with Shadows documentary, which is really interesting to kind of get that Easter egg in there as well. But look, it's just a fascinating time and, and it, it's certainly worth reading up on the history and watching pretty much all the videos that you can about it to see and, and know what was going on behind the scenes while all this was, was taking place. It's just, it's a very interesting time in their history. I just want to know more about why Gino gave his mom a subtle shout out there. Is he trailing in the favored offspring standings that get updated around the no, I just, household? It's just one of the, I just remember being like at this age all the time and, you know, I'd be watching something and I'm looking around and it'd be like, you know, my mom was the, the one closest to me and I'm just telling her because I didn't have at this point, I didn't have a lot of my close buddies that like I went to school with and stuff that were that into wrestling. So I didn't really have a bunch of people to like sh- do what I'm doing right now to share my like nerd fandom of wrestling with. It was kind of me. My sister would get caught up in it and she'd end up watching it with me all the time, but I'd like end up go like telling people that had didn't care at all about it. And it was probably Mrs. B that got caught in the crossfire all the time. Cause I could just remember <laughs> like, whining and crying to her. Anytime something bothered me, she was, your mother is a saint. Gina. I was going to say she was a good sport. She'd kind of like try it. Stephanie does the same thing now. She'll kind of say, Oh yeah, yeah, that's Kofi. Right. You know, she, she knows more than, uh, than, than she tries to lead on too. So see, um, for me, it was the opposite for me. All of my close friends were really into it. We watched all the pay-per-views in my, in my basement. We had like the, the old school big, you know, rear projector, big screen down there. The thing that weighed like 8,000 pounds. And my father would stay upstairs in his den. And unbeknownst to me until like we finally would hear him, he was actually watching the pay-per-view also. Oh, that's cool. And and like something would happen. And like if one of the guys that he liked would like lose, I would hear him like bang like he lost a horse race. <laughs> And I would hear him go, oh, get the f- out of here. <laughs> and my friends would be like, dude, your dad's awesome. <laughs> that is great. Yeah, it was me usually. Um, my cousin, my, I had an older cousin who was a few years older than me, and he got me. Like, he was one that started watching wrestling. So when I was really young, I remember watching it a lot with him and because we had the black box forever. So my dad would always flip the pay-per-views on, and we'd be watching them. And, I mean, I – I just was it was yeah it was me a lot of the time by myself just watching and uh and I can remember some of these like these 96 97 98 shows literally like 10 11 year old me I can just I get this strange deja vu when we start talking about it cuz I can re- I just remember sitting right there and um it's funny th- this next match was one of these matches that as a kid you're kind of like I don't really know these guys you know what's going on here and then like about halfway into the match you just kind of get sold you're like holy crap these guys are awesome. I don't know Takamichi Noku or the great Sasuke when I'm 10 years old. Both men are making their WWE, WWF debut. And all of a sudden, uh, from the crowd, we see Mankind and Triple H show up. They're still fighting. Um, and uh, we get the tie-up and the feeling out slow process to start for uh, Michinoku and Sasuke. Kind of a slow first two minutes. Then we get a big spinning kick by Satsuke, a single leg Boston, uh, then a taco with a big strike, then a drop kick to the back of the head, then one to the front of the face of the seated Sasuke. Uh, just different offense than we're used to seeing at this point. You know, uh, Satsuke back, body drop, then he hits a, a kick off the top rope to Taka outside the ring. Um, 
Satsuchi is just laying in some kicks. They're stiff. Taka's out on the mat. And then Taka catches a leg, then a leg whip. Uh, Satsuke ducks outside and Taka leaps to the top rope and springboards. He could get so much air. This guy, it was unbelievable. And he would like float up in the air and he just kind of get this hang time where he would, it was unbelievable. And, and he would do this repeatedly. He hit this springboard plancha to Satsuke. My, my, my words were effing incredible. My notes, air and ability to just run and jump. He ran. From the end of the From the ring and just leaped Straight to the top and jumped It wasn't like he like Like pulled himself up He just ran, leaped And then blew, I, you don't see many guys Do this, even try to do this the, the margin for error there Is so thin, trying this on your First ever match in, a, in like a WWE crowd and on, on a big show like this really shows you how much Confidence this guy has in himself uh, back in the ring, Satsuke hits a suplex. Taka lands on his feet. Then a standing Hurricane Rana, a quick arm, uh, st- a quick arm step over roll up by Taka. And then outside the ring, you get a Satsuke springboard moonsault from the apron on Taka. A belly to belly by Taka. We get a drop kick to Satsuke's back, and then a Michinoku driver, which would become his finisher for two. Taka off the top uh, with a drop kick. Uh, power bomb, then an underhook back suplex into a pin by Satsuke. You get 10 minutes. The last seven minutes of this match were awesome. This is really good stuff, Darren. And this is something that you're not seeing on WWF TV at the time. And you're you're seeing a little more of it on WCW, but even them with the lucha is a little different than like the Japanese style. So this is really fresh at this time. I was actually just going to say that. So WCW at the time was kind of going with a more, you know, loose Lucha Libre style with their cruiserweights, as you were talking about. And this style, while it does have his, you know, the high flying aerial tactics, the the Japanese style is different. And it's a nice contrast between the two. And it's kind of interesting to look back on the match, the matches at that level between the two companies at the time and notice those differences between the two. Um, yeah, I mean, you mentioned everything that's great about the match. All the moves you mentioned are fantastic. Um, I, I'll be honest with you. I, I was caught off guard. I forgot the finish of the match. When he He's hit the Michinoku driver. And, I thought you know, that was it. I thought that was it. And because I, he, he was built so strong. He was the guy, you know, like that they yep. built this around. I, I forgot that he initially he didn't win this match. I just assumed he was going to win. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, Sasuke only he did two matches against uh, Michinoku in WWE. And then he went back to Japan. Um, you know, Mikunochu, uh, he stays in the, in the Federation. Um, but th- they kind of like, um, it's not that they don't use them because they obviously do, but they end up kind of building a division around guys like, uh, you know, Scott Putsky and Brian Christopher and stuff like that. And things went off the rails a little bit, uh, from, from my money, from what I can remember of these light heavyweight matches at the time, I can't remember one that I thought was better than this. This is the best one. I yeah. think this is the best one. I really yep. do. I think I these guys didn't really get any inst- like much instruction either because they were so new and they just kind of came in and tore the house down, you know? Because yep. sometimes you wonder if, um, and Andrew, this is something we see nowadays, and I was always wondering this with the cruiserweights in the 205. You get the feeling that some of those guys are instructed to like not go out there and tear the freaking house down um, because there's such similar styles sometimes with the main event. Like, what does someone like a Seth Rollins do all that much different than? 
than someone in the cruiserweights, you know. So it, they, it's almost like they hold back a little bit. These guys weren't holding back. Well, it also explains why 205 Live is seen as sort of the minor yep. leagues because right. guys that look just like them are on the main show and mm-hmm. suddenly small guys flying around isn't as much of a selling point as it was 25 years ago. Now, Takami Shinoku would eventually become a very good worker, very well-known. He came here to job for the great Sasuke, who was one of the most well-known wrestlers in all of Japan. This was WWF realizing they were a little bit late to the party with the cruiserweights, light heavyweights, whatever you want to call them. They realized, oh no, our competition has Rey Mysterio, Juventud Guerrera, Psychosis, Jushin Liger, whenever he decided to come to America, was in WCW before the WCW New Japan Alliance fell apart. A couple of other guys as well, Dean Malenko for sure. And they realized they needed something to counter it. Now, their light heavyweight division wasn't terrible. I would have liked it a lot more had I not known guys on the other channel were doing those matches and were doing them far better. This, though, this was pretty darn good and not something you saw often in 1997, as evidenced by the fact that Vince McMahon sort of has a rough match here. Um, Sasuke... That's being being kind. (laughs) Yeah, he stiffs Taka in the face with a kick in the corner. Now... It's a, it's a stiff kick, and the, the camera catches it, and you can see he caught him pretty flush. And Vince immediately goes, come on, ref, it's time to stop this one. For a kick in the corner? Yeah. Now, it gets worse because, now, disclosure, for anybody out there that's wondering why this rubbed me the wrong way, I have a girlfriend of Asian heritage. I'm a little more sensitive to this stuff than the average person. So Taka gets the springboard plancha that Gino was talking about. This was huge. Nobody got this kind of airtime in 1997. No one. Vince McMahon, who would eventually be worth more money than God, would put WCW out of business, would become recognizable even to casual people, calls Taka Nishinoku a samurai warrior. I didn't even catch no. that. No. I didn't even catch just that. Just no? It's just like the checklist of like something that's sort of Asian-ish that I can like say, you know? It's like, come on. There, there was no. so much of this going on around that time, you know? That was like. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. just like, oh, and, yeah, and let's check the box there, you know? Asian thing yeah. that like people will kind of know what I'm referencing. It's just like, come on. Yeah. Yeah. Now. Now, Kai and Tai would play that for laughs later in the year. They'd play that stuff. I mean, the Yamaguchi-san segment with Val Venus lives on in infamy, for better or for worse. Uh, having said that, this was a case where WWF was putting something out there, and they didn't really know what they were doing with it at this point. Still, it's a really good match. It's a fun match. The ending is sort of out of nowhere with the bridge German suplex. To me, it screams that they had a couple minutes more spots lined up and the ref said go home because they were running up against the time problem. But still, this was a really good match. It showed Takamishinoku had what it took to be a player. They would have a match the next night on Raw and the great Sasuke would do something that had never been seen before in United States television. They did something called the Space Flying Tiger Drop, 
which is just a phenomenal thing to see. Go watch that on Raw. I'm sure it's on the network somewhere. This was a really good match. If you haven't seen it, go watch. You're in for a treat. We get to the parking lot where Triple H and Mankind are still fighting. A, a fun brawl on all the equipment. And this is just a cool un, uh, ongoing angle throughout the show. You know, what do you think they're doing like in between? In between? Not really fighting. I'm wondering about that. sitting on thing. some chairs, having a beer, I'm waiting for a few. And they're like, <laughs> okay, guys, get up. You know, uh, 20 seconds, 10, five, and go, fight. You know, like, just right back to them. Or, like, are these just sort of, I mean, they don't, because they're not pre-recorded. The announcers are, you know, I don't think. Um, they, they seemed live because the way the crowd was reacting, you know, and the the announcers were reacting to the crowd because that, that was the difference. If they would have just been all in the back area, they might've been pre-recorded, but they were going through the crowd and getting actual live reactions. So you're right. That's, I always wonder about stuff like that. Like they're just sitting in gorilla the whole time. And Vince just comes up. Like they're just sitting there listening to a Walkman, you know, and like Vince just comes in, like taps them on the shoulder. Okay. It's your time. You know, like go ahead, (laughs) go ahead. That's a funny thing to bring up too. I'm glad you mentioned it. So, so we, uh, we're backstage. We get Vader and Paul bear, Paul bear with the orange hair, um, talking with Michael Hayes. This is really cool. Just if you're like a wrestling historian and knowing about what's coming soon. Um, he talks about how Undertaker is a murderer. You're a murderer! You're a murderer! <laughs> that killed that wasn't family. bad. I'm proud of that. It was good. It was. <laughs> uh, we get footage of the Royal Rumble where Vader beat Undertaker. And, and they were both in that final four. And then in that really cool final four match, which I think we'll end up doing one day too. I really love that 97 uh, pay-per-view. It's an in your house. It's another quick watch where the, well, the we know event- Andrew didn't pick it for next week. I know. Huh? <laughs> Um, and um, this was actually the match that was supposed to be uh, Taker versus Ahmed Johnson, but unfortunately, Ahmed Johnson got hurt like he always. Unfortunately, and, and, that's and, an unfortunately. Uh, no, I, I was gonna say, <laughs> uh, fortunately for Ahmed, fortunately for us, because we got a much better match better, than what better. we would have got from Ahmed, and we get big cheers for the Undertaker here. We get the long Undertaker entrance. Vader is pacing inside the ring. He's kind of rattled by the pyro a little bit and sort of like a kind of like a, a rattled like grizzly bear, you know. And uh Taker is on the offense early. Strikes, clothesline, leg drop, all taker, old school, walk in the top, the top rope. Vader knocks down Taker, who sits up and then flies for a clothesline. Taker is bouncing around here. I just think he's excited at this point. To be working with guys that can actually go, like think about how he had been, who he'd been stuck with from like ninety two ish to ninety six until like Foley comes in here. Just a bunch of stiffs. He's actually getting to work with Foley and Vader and these guys that can go and like Austin and Brett. You could see he just he's got a bounce in his step here that he doesn't have when he's facing the big dudes. Um, Vader headlock slows it down. We get a shoulder block, but Taker knocks Vader outside the ring. And JR is doing a really good job getting Vader over to telling us about Japan and his history. I I forgot that Vince sort of let Jim do this sometimes, you know. We think about Vince not letting him do it, but he did a lot of the time, and especially in this like 95 through 98 era, really did let him sort of uh, build stories and, and let us know about guys. So um 
we get Vader. Let's see. Taker gets the. Uh, they're they're outside the ring. They're battling. Va- Vader tosses Taker into the steps. Paul Bearer kicks him. Anytime Paul Bearer gets involved, it's so <laughs> awful. He can't like he can he can't do anything because I think he's just worried he's gonna fall down. So he has to just try to like stomp without falling, and he just gives these terrible like weak kicks. Um, and Paul Bear is just calling him again. Andrew, what is he saying? <laughs> we get the taker neck breaker to Vader across the top ropes from the apron and then uh, up to the top for a clothesline for two. Vader gets tossed over. Uh, so Taker ends up going after um, Paul Bear and Vader ends up nailing Undertaker from behind and he, um, outside the ring. Paul starts using his shoe on Undertaker. Vader's now in charge. Big clubbing blows, big clothesline off the middle turnbuckle. Paul Bear is just trash talking the fans and the ring crew and the cameraman. Vader is dominating with big moves, splashes, really fast pace for these two guys going at it. Um, now Vader slows it down. Uh, a little sloppy, sort of a rest hold neck lock. I think it was mainly sort of a spot for Taker to just kind of battle back out um, and and kind of get like a baby fast face comeback. Doesn't last a long time though. Um, fires back. Vader quickly with the clothesline. He's again in charge. And now Taker. He starts to battle back rights and lefts. He goes for the choke slam, but Vader kicks Taker right in the nuts. It should have been a DQ. Jr. mentions it. Uh, just nothing. We get a weird spot where Taker goes for a tombstone, but Vader reverses it. But I think because of the size and the fact that Vader is just big, it's tough to reverse with a guy as tall as Taker and then someone who's got Vader's weight. It sort of pulled them down on the on the attempt to re- uh, reverse there. So it was a sloppy cover by Taker for two. Um, Vader knocks Taker down, drops an elbow, heads up to the top uh, rope for the Vader bomb, but Taker gets up. He nails him with a low blow. That should have been a DQ. Uh, Taker catches Vader from the top with a choke slam for two. Uh, really close, just misses. You get another choke slam. Vader kicks out. Jr. says that nobody's ever kicked out of two. I don't. Know, I mean, I'm sure there may have been someone, but he might have been right at this point. I don't know how many people had kicked out of like. I two feel ch- like Hogan might have. Yeah. At some point. It, it may have been, but it just might have been at the time they they weren't doing like millions of finishers at that point. Because I think no. when when Taker beat him, it was because Taker. Pile drived him on the chair that Ric Flair threw in there, and yep. that was at this Tuesday in Texas. And then they ended up. Um, uh, that was when '92 Royal Rumble, when the belt was up for grabs, when they uh, when they um, held it up. So I th- I think this might he might be right. It, normally, when we hear stuff like that, it's usually hyperbole. But I actually stopped and think about it. He, he could have been right here. Um, we end up getting the tombstone by Taker for the win. DZ, I really like this match. I thought these two dudes worked great. They worked fast almost all throughout. There might have been a minute or two where they slowed things down only to then build it back up. It wasn't like they were out of shape. Vader could go. He could go. We've discussed how he was booked in a lot of his WWF run. But I got to say, this was probably one of his best booked matches, even in a clean defeat. He looked very strong here. The commentary team got him over. And he like he actually he actually in a few different times with Paul Bear with him you you could have believed that he might have been able to win this match it wouldn't have been that big of a shock um, so I mean I was another one where I thought I rem- I remembered thinking this match was good but I was pleasantly surprised I was it was even better than I remembered yeah I mean for those of us that that followed Vader you know outside if you only watch WWE WWF 
you didn't see the Vader that that Gino, Andrew, and myself know. Uh, the Vader that was in New Japan Pro Wrestling was the IWGP Heavyweight Champion. The Vader that we saw in WCW. I mean, Vader was, you know, the heel for a long time there. He was, you know, opposite of Sting. He was the World Heavyweight Champion in 92 and 93. Uh, he kind of, you know, he was a guy when... Uh, when Flair was gone for a bit, when he went to WWE, Vader really picked up a lot of the slack there. Um, yeah, I mean the booking in WWE, WWF, we've talked about it before. It didn't do him. It didn't do him any favors. But this match shows you what Vader can do. Um, Taker, like you said, absolutely has a spring in his step. He hits a flying clothesline off the top rope in the in this match. It's just an absolute thing of beauty to see somebody at that size get that kind of. Uh, that kind of height off of it, and, and it's just it's like poetry in motion. If you can even use that in in a wrestling ring, but yeah, I mean, the, you know, the the two quizzical things are the low blows, and you know, why are they okay and everything like that. Uh, give Vader props for the bump he took on the choke slam off the second rope because he did a lot of that move uh, with propelling himself backward and and going pretty far across the ring. In the process, you could see part of the story how. You know, Paul Bearer is just trying everything he possibly can to have somebody beat The Undertaker. Uh, and you kind of see that agony on his face to continue that storyline. Because at this point, we have been revealed, you know, like you're talking about with Murderer, the secret that The Undertaker killed his family and the bombshell that Kane is still alive. So we're getting to the point where that is that blow off is, is shortly, you know, shortly to come. But this is Matt. This match is just for two big guys. It's just really good. And, and for somebody that was a fan of Vader for all of his years outside of WWE, it was a good reminder of the things that he could do. And uh, I really enjoyed it. For me, between these two, it was close to a four star match. This was a lot of fun. I thoroughly enjoyed this. Longtime listeners of the podcast will know I am a sucker for big guys that can move. Drink. Everybody drink. 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 Now, Vader, not long after this, would begin a slippery slope to where it wasn't a pretty picture to see him work anymore. However, for at least this night, he was tremendous. Taker was game. Those two worked their butts off. And you mentioned the rest hold that Taker had the comeback spot. After that, I thought the match really picked up. I thought the last five minutes were very, very good. They did do a weird spot where Taker tried to set up a choke slam and then Vader sort of tumbled out of it. I don't know whether that was a botch or not, or if it was just something they planned that didn't look quite as good as it may have looked in their heads at the time. But Vader goes up for the Vader bomb, Taker goes low and then choke slams him off the second rope. I thought that was a really cool spot. Vader taking a really nice bump for a guy his size. Taker gets the tombstone for the win, gets a big pop. Regardless of what they were doing with Brett, Taker was always going to be over here in Canada, and this got the crowd really fired up for the main event while making the champion look as strong as it could. So if you haven't seen this match, this is another one to go out of your way and see, and it's another selling point on what's an excellent pay-per-view. Yeah, this um, this is 
maybe best Vader's best match in the WWE. It's definitely one, really one of them. He and this, had a couple with Sean that were good. Yes, but there yeah. was also the the, the schmozzy endings and stuff. Yeah, yeah, Vader was supposed to win the title, and then Sean was a brat about it. We mm-hmm. don't know what really went on back then, but. Vader had a couple of good matches yeah, in WWF. Did. Don't get that twisted, but no. the Vader in WWF versus Big Van Vader in WCW and New Japan, th- there's not much of a comparison there. The big point in his favor is that he did a couple of guest spots on Boy Meets World. Oh, yeah, that was great. Great. Who, Frankie's who that, father. Dad did he play Frankie's father, right? Frankie. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and uh, Frankie, who was uh, would go on to be the big man in Remember the Titans, awesome, right? Uh, I believe. Yeah, he did. He was yep, great. Yeah, that was him. So, so this was good. Yeah, you had a little botch spot. I hate, we didn't love the low blow spots, but these dudes freaking worked their butts off, and uh, they they played great. I mean, they had a they had a great great like back and forth, played off each other really well, really good chemistry. Uh, I think you know Taker at this point he had a uh, Diesel, Brett, probably with Mankind. But this was up there on his short list of, of better matches that he's had. So kudos to the both big man. We get footage of the crowd uh, in the area, and we get the Heart Foundation, all the buildup, faction warfare, the New Nation, the DOA, Los Bariquas, all the build of the hearts. What was The only thing I thought was sort of strange was that, it, and it didn't not make sense because Mankind did have stuff going on with the uh, with Bret Hart or with uh, Triple H, but he was involved in a lot of this sort of stuff too. He so he could have very easily been in this team WWE team USA um, group, but he it was fine. He had his stuff going on with Triple H. So backstage, we've got the team of Austin Shamrock, Goldust, and LOD. All why this really made sense too is they're all feuding with an individual. And also with the overall group Brett's finishing up the stuff that he had with Austin He's kind of transitioning Remember Shamrock was the referee At their match at Wrestlemania So Brett started to kind of get into it with Shamrock there too Austin's transitioning into a feud with Owen Pillman feuding with Goldust He also has former issues with Austin LOD is feud- feuding with Owen and Davey We got tag issues there It all made sense We've got uh, Goldust um, then Shamrock, then Animal, then Hawk. Everybody has a little, uh, little bit where they say a few things. Hawk says, "What a rush!" But Stone Cold doesn't say a word, and they all walk off. We get the Farmer's Daughter singing the Canadian national anthem. Super big match feel though, as DZ was saying, it does feel like a WrestleMania kind of main event. Fink introduces the premiere of Alberta, and then Stu and Helen Hart. We get. Team uh, USA with a total combined weight of over 1,300 pounds. Goldust comes out. He is booed first. Uh, no more Lena with him. Uh, next is Ken Shamrock. Sort of mixed. You do get a couple cheers in there for Shamrock. He's not really booed. Uh, some of the girls seem very into Ken. Uh, the crowd. Ken Shamrock Hel- rocks. Right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, uh, the if crowd- you watch it, you know what I'm talking about. You know what we're talking about. <laughs> Crowd doesn't really want to boo LOD initially, but as Darren mentioned, we don't get the LOD pop. How weird is it? We're so used to seeing, right? It's weird. Uh, It is. It's not not a boo, but it's like, it's eerily like indifferent. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's exactly what it is. Um, and, And then Vince calls them American Originals, Hawk, Animal, 
the Legion of Doom. Not bad. Not bad. We get some pretty sizable boos for Austin. Then some cheers, but it's like, it's kind of almost like a Roman Reigns mixed reaction that we've got through some recent years before he does this, this heel Roman Reigns where it was like, you'd get some people cheers, but then the boos would kind of drown them out. Um, it was just good. It was a, a good reaction. And now we get the Canadian team. And man, I, I'm just trying to think of of crowds that I could remember being as excited for this main event team announcement and for this match and really this this whole show, but this match in particular. And you could tell me Money in the Bank with CM Punk, which uh, which was awesome. You could probably tell me a couple more, maybe like something even way back to WrestleMania three. You know, I got one that'll make Darren really upset. No, Let's hear it. Rock Hogan in Toronto. No, no, you're right. That's true. That's that's true. That's very true. That crowd was incredible. They they it was a double turn in the match. That was in, insane. You know, not just a double turn sort of for that match, and then Hogan ends up turning. But it was great. You're right. And that was probably is... one of the least offended I ever felt after a Hogan match. And yeah, because you know why? He he did what he was supposed to do there. He got his nostalgia. He got his stuff, and he didn't win. Right. That right. was cool. You know what? He he didn't. We didn't have to. And and honestly, he worked his ass off in that match. Yep, he match. did. He works hard. We're That's, gonna need to do that at some will. point. Right. I gotta tell you. Yeah, we I will. Thought about that for next week. I didn't go yeah. there, but I thought about. No, it. it's a good. It's a good one. And and yeah, it is. Um, but I mean, this this crowd is just nuts. We get Pillman first, Anvil even bigger. Like Anvil gets a bigger response. Than anyone else on this show before this match. Like, when could you have ever said that about Jim the Anvil Nyhart? Bless his heart. Um, you know, the, the next guy. The next guy is massive, though. When the bulldog. Oh, oh my god! You, you think they were back in Wembley? I know it is. Well, he came out with Miss Calgary. <laughs> they don't just give that honor away. That's true. That's True, um, and he's the current European champion. Next, it's the IC champ Owen coming out with both of his slammies. They go freaking nuts for Owen, and before Brett's music even plays, I mean, my notes are this is all time like then all time WrestleMania esque crowd uh, noise. We're like we're talking. You can't really even hear Fink announcing the, these guys as they're coming down. Um, and we get this just sustained, incredible energy all for the intros as the men get into the ring. Brett goes out and he, he puts a gla- his glasses on his mom, Helen, and then he gets oh, in the ring. The way, you know, the attendance for this place, it sounds like there's 80,000 people there. There's barely 12,000 people. Yeah, and there's a lot of empty space on the floor, too. I don't know if you guys saw, but if I you look that. down at ringside, there's an entire, like, Back part of what you could tell is a hockey rink, and it's completely empty. This, yeah, this they did just they were so into this, they did such a great job. And and uh, Jerry, the king, when Brett puts the glasses on his mom, he says, I didn't know they came in bifocals, which, <laughs> which got, that was a good one. That and me. JR has to try to break him down for it, which means you know he had to restrain himself yeah. from laughing. Yeah, because that was a good one. I mean, we get on King for saying some awful, horrible stuff. That literally made me chuckle when I was watching. Uh, Could he get away with that today, or would he get hit with an age discrimination suit? (laughs) Right. Is he he an ageist? (laughs) 
I, th- I think he'd be okay. Like, if it was Miz's dad, you could say whatever you want about Miz's dad. He's game, you know? I love Mr. Yeah. Miz. He's such a great, like, heel father. Um, so, we... I mean, this is just big match, big fight feel. JR mentions the cameras ringside building a dock of uh, of Brett's life there, as as Darren mentioned, uh, wrestling with shadows. Uh, Brett and Austin start, and the crowd loves it. They battle all punches uh, with the early advantage to Brett as he stomps out Austin. Jerry says that the building is shaking, and JR says, you got to be here to feel it. And you know what? Like, these two guys are, again, they... I believe them with what they're saying. Like you could tell, I don't. It's, it doesn't feel hyperbably when we when we hear the reactions and we can hear it from them. Like it does really. Even even Vince, like bringing back the 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 old school voice. I think he felt like it was just a really big show to to go to uh, one of his old crutches there. So we've got um, one few minutes with uh, with these two back and forth to start. Austin with a back heel low blow early on And then he gets the million dollar dream Brett counters to a, a sort of Throwback to their 96 Survivor Series Match finish just for uh, For two where he kind of he kind of Pins him and he's got him pinned like on, on Their backs um, Brett tags In Anvil Austin with the Thez Press he tags in Shamrock Anvil throws up his Dukes in a fighting position Sort of goofy looking um, When he's you know like he's, he's ready to Square up with Ken here let's do this real Real style you know um, Pillman runs in to stop an ankle lock Ken is in control uh, Pillman tags in to battle Shamrock He rakes, he bites his face He chops, backbreaker for two e- Even um, this Ken turns it around, he hits a belly to belly And so we get the first few minutes where the crowd's hot And they're all kind of taking turns coming in Darren, but like Pillman We see so little from Pillman The poor guy was completely broken down At this point of his career But even the few minutes where he gets in He's bouncing around And looking like he's got an extra bounce to his step And just trying to give like every ounce Of anything that he's got in here From from like an energy standpoint Yeah, he's really into it He's smiling the whole time You could tell he's just having a lot of fun out there Uh, And you could see with a lot of the wrestlers I can only only, almost imagine When when Brenton and uh, and uh, Austin are, are eyeball to eyeball that they're probably even saying to each other like, man, this is this is freaking awesome. Like we got to tear this place down. This place is nuts, you know. Um, but yeah, Pelman just you, you could tell he doesn't have a lot left in the tank. You know, his part in the match is what it is. But um, you know, he throws everything that he possibly can out there. And like I said, he looks like a kid in the candy store, and he's just having a good time. And it was really cool to watch. It plays into my main takeaway from the match, which is that. It works because everyone involved is either a tremendous world-class worker or has a few big spots they can do quickly before tagging out to where they're not overexposed. That's where you get people like Hawk and Animal. That's where you get Neidhart and the Bulldog to a certain extent. Mixing in with guys like Brett, guys like Owen, guys like Austin, even guys like Shamrock who got pro wrestling right away. This was really cool, and it was booked really, really well. Yeah, and you know, as for as goofy as it kind of looks on paper when you see the, like, oh, uh, you know, who's the Team USA? I will say, Team Canada is obviously all going to be over, right? The crowd loves them. But these guys on on Team USA at this point were all actually over. And and so in a, in a good, like we were saying, the crowd with a few of them, didn't really know what to do because they sort of didn't want to boo them, but but they know them and they know who these guys are and they're like relevant 
like mid card to top level uh, guys. So um, I think, oh, I got my, uh, I was watching the end of the Lakers one. So there we go. Uh, Lakers T Wolves. It just, just came up in the sound. <laughs> the, the sound came up there. But, but th- these guys are over, right? That, that's what's great. So like looking back at it and looking kind of at the card and like where we are at, at this time in 97. This actually does make sense. All of these guys were going to get heat one way or the other. They're in these feuds. Even someone like Goldust has got sort of an interesting thing going on with Marlena. Um, you know, Shamrock is going to get really over very soon towards the end of 97. He's going to have a main event match, uh, title match with Shawn Michaels, I think, the month after uh, the, the screw job when, uh, when Brett leaves. He battles uh, Shawn right after that. So, yeah, these guys are over, and this is a blast uh, the first few minutes of this match. We pick it up where... Owen and uh, Goldust tag in Fans just go nuts For Owen and it's like any any A lot of these matchups are just kind of fun To, to look back at again Owen and Goldust You know uh, Owen with an insiguri King says there must be 50 heart members Ringside crowd now chanting Austin sucks As Hawk tags in He goes to work on Owen Hawk with a cross body off the top as the fans Chant for Owen Bulldog tags in for a big cheer And a big suplex He hits this running power slam uh, The running power slam but Goldust breaks up the pin In comes Animal and Brett Uh, Just kind of a fun little Animal and Brett Like oh yeah LOD Heart Foundation Years before you know Goldie gets tagged in again So now we get Brett versus Goldust Another little fun uh, iteration Um he, Goldust gets trapped in the heart corner And they start picking him apart And now the US team They all come over and uh, This is just all so good They've they're, What's great too is like the, the We're giving props to the Canada, Team Canada for you know Working as baby faces in Canada Here and as heels a lot of the other time But how about giving props to the other side The Team USA who's most of these guys Are used to working as baby faces mm-hmm. And they gotta be the heels here you know, and they're just all so great. They're totally fine with it. They're all good working the complete opposite of what they actually are right now, like in in the company. Um, so we get the Owen and Goldust, and then Animal tags in. We get a, a spinning heel kick, then a drop kick off the top rope by Owen, uh, then a kip up. Owen looks great here again. Like all these guys came with their working boots on tonight. The crowd probably elevated them even more. Animal with a power bomb, then a power slam. Hawk tags in. LSD, uh, LSD, LOT. It's a, it's a uh, doomsday. I mean, you never know what Hawk was taking. Doomsday for some of you out there, but the LOD doomsday was, uh, was broken up at two. Uh, then all hell just breaks loose. Everyone's in the ring. Austin and Owen are going at it. Austin is just soaked. He's just soaked. I. He's sweat. People are throwing stuff at him, I think, from the crowd, like drinks and stuff. I mean, he is just lathered. They, they, I was, that's right. Someone must have drenched him with a drink that we didn't see. He nails Owen's legs with the well, chair. Bruce took Stu's drink and dumped it on Austin. Okay, right okay there we go. Yeah. There we go. Okay, that's what I missed. Okay. And he nails Owen's legs with a chair. And then Bruce Hart grabs Austin from the front row. And Taryn... This is something we saw whenever the hearts would get would get in like have a family thing or the hearts ringside. Bruce was trying to get involved, and I remember reading and hearing about how they had told Bruce, "Do not get involved in this particular match. Don't do anything. Don't jump the rails. Don't do anything." He did the exact opposite of everything they told him. The guy just could never like listen to instruction and always wanted to like. To be the guy to get himself over to. It's like 
this he, you, every every time this happens, Bruce, and it's like, goddamn, Bruce. You know what I in mean? In fairness, he was the victim of my favorite Bobby Heenan line of all time. <laughs> Bruce, you got nine months, and the best you can come up with is Bruce. <laughs> it couldn't have been easy being Bruce Hart. No, no. I mean, you, you think about it. He clearly wanted in the business, and he's got his entire family there. You know, uh, they're icons in the industry. They're unbelievable success stories. And he's the guy sitting ringside being told to sit on his hands. It, it can't be easy. I, I think there was something, too, that Stu wanted him, wanted Bruce to get the job that Owen got. And I think Brett was like, no. Like, Owen, <laughs> Owen's a better wrestler, and we're not going to fucking push Bruce here. Like, from I'm what sorry. I've seen from Bruce, it's hard to imagine that he could have outworked Owen. <laughs> oh, no, 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 yeah, exactly, exactly. And there were also some horror stories about how Bruce had the book at Stampede Wrestling and did not do a great job with it. That's in Brett's book. It's, yeah. It, there, there's a lot there with a lot of different members of the Hart family. Seems like each one of them has their own little bit of baggage for the most part. With the exception of Wayne, who I believe makes an appearance, it's I, I mean, it's it's not Bruce like Bruce and Wayne. Hmm. Bruce and Wayne, yeah. <laughs> maybe and maybe it's starting to make sense. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Owen is limping around now, and in the ring, it's Austin and Nyhart. Austin gets caught in the corner of the Heart Foundation, and every time this happens, the crowd is just going nuts. They love it as the Heart foundation just kicks and stomps whoever ends up in that corner um they just they all know psychology all these guys it was just a perfect fit for the hearts with brett as the faction as the leader and they all kind of slotted in their roles you got owen as sort of the number two there you got the muscles with bulldog and then with jim you got the wild card the crazy pillman and uh now austin and pillman go at it we get a stunner austin grabs uh or um we okay we get we get the fire extinguisher here getting hit to Austin's knee into the ring post. And then the figure four Hawk goes to break it up and uh, bulldog comes into battle Hawk. So while this is going on, I mean, there's this chaos going on all over now. This is a 10 man tag. So Owen's been limping around. He's been taken to the back. Vince says he is out of action. The referees are now taking stone cold back for medical attention so the crowds are Boo as he ends up leaving so We look like we're down to a four on four Here but again we know Wrestling we, we know in the middle of a match These guys are going to come back with plenty of time Left so um, We are with a, They're both back in down to four On four animal and anvil are In the ring Jim uh, Nyhart Gains the advantage he tags Brett for a little Double team action here old old School heart foundation now we got Shamrock and Brett Pillman runs in with a clothesline. Brett kind of a a low blowish headbutt, but Brett goes headfirst into the turnbuckle, and then Brett tosses Ken outside. Pillman grabs him and runs him into the Spanish announce table, but Hawk nails Pillman. This was a really cool sequence. He kind of catches him out of nowhere. Um, LOD and uh, Bulldog and Pillman battle outside. They toss Hawk into the steps. Brett hits the side rush and leg sweep. Bulldog uh, checks in now, and he stomps out. Ken, as the fans start to go crazy, uh, Ken with the low blow when the ref isn't looking, Goldust tags in, uh, it's Goldust uh, against Davey, Goldie hits a bulldog, and JR screams, bulldog headlock, if you will, little uh, little shout out to the dust here, so, uh, middle part of this uh, match, DZ, 
the pace is still great. The action's still great. We get the the spot where Owen and and Austin are taken to the back. Um, but you know, like we we assume they're they're taken to the back. Austin didn't look like he didn't want to go back. Owen was trying. Neither one of them wanted to go back. Owen looked a little more banged up, but you know, we sense they're coming back. Yeah, I mean, it is professional wrestling. You, you, there's no way that Owen and Austin <laughs> were going to be done for the night at this point. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, like I talked about th- this match. You know, it, it goes from it goes from uh, you know a, a wrestling match to a brawl to a wrestling match to a brawl, but all the while never taking the foot off the accelerator. You get nonstop action. The crowd is into every single tag. You get some really unique matchups in the ring, like you outlined. You know, seeing Brett and Animal in the ring together, you know, was really cool. For example, and you talked about that. But yeah, I mean, you're you're getting a little bit of everything. You're getting everything you could ask for. The moves are on point. Um, you know, the stuff outside the ring is adding to it. You could feel the the tension, the animosity, the crowd is into it. It's building and building. And even though it's just a five on five match and an in your house pay-per-view, it really has a big fight feel to it that, that it, it almost felt like this match was made for a bigger stage, which is what makes and elevates this pay-per-view to what Dave Meltzer would, would list as the pay-per-view of the year in all professional wrestling in 1997. Guys, I love this match. I love it. I truly do. I have it as a four and a half star match. My one problem, and you guys probably know what it is. Is it the figure four on the ring post? I hate the ring post figure four. I love it. He hates it. Well, here's the thing, especially this one. You can see Brett putting it on. You can see Austin working with Brett to keep him from hitting his head on the floor. He's grabbing Brett's foot. And Brett's talked about that in his book. It's just, look, it's overly choreographed. You're not going to win a match with it. Nobody bought that Austin wasn't coming back out, given the heat he had with the crowd. To me, that just seemed like a useless spot. Admittedly, I hate that move. I don't understand what value it had in the match, or most matches for that matter. To me, that fell flat. Everything else in the match, great, terrific, outstanding, maybe one of the best matches of the entire year on one of the best pay-per-views of the entire year. That, though, I could do without. And kayfabe, uh, Brett's response to you would be that he wants to weaken up the legs for the sharpshooter. He feels like he puts him on for uh, five seconds there, get him a little weak, continue to work on the legs. But I, I agree, I don't... You know, I like that, and like the same thing is like the tarantula, right? That um, that that Tajiri. that Tajiri would use all the time. That you have to break within five seconds, anyways. Like yep. in a no DQ match, give that to me all day long, right? Like all day long. If they don't have to break the hold, that's per- then give me the figure four on the ring post. Give me the the you know the moves around the ropes. But I sort of agree with you. I d- I don't love the whole when you know you've only got five seconds, four seconds to do it thing, and it takes a lot of setting up to do. I, I didn't mind it as much because at least we didn't have a lot of people doing it, right? It didn't. It didn't get. Brett seemed like he was one of the only ones that that did it, and uh, so if it, it didn't like get overdone because he he. So I don't think he brought it out as much. Like he he sort of brought it out in the bigger matches, but I I can understand your gripe. That that's a fair gripe there, and uh, yeah. and a lot of times I'll I'll want to stick up for Brett to the to the very end, but no, I'll I'll, I'll give you the gripe there. I, uh, I appreciate that. Thank yeah. you. And I gotta tell you, look, I like Brett a lot. I like watching his matches. I love watching him work. And this was really good. It's just, 
of all of the things he added in the mid nineties to try to keep himself, you know, fresh and that he wouldn't work the same match twice in a row. That one, I just, eh, it, it, it never hit me right. So we're down to the final, like, I guess third or so of the match where Pillman comes running in like a madman. Uh, Bulldog hits a superplex for two that gets broken up by Hawk. Here comes Austin limping down the aisle. Uh, Golducks tags in Austin. And then Brett tags in. Austin's got the advantage suplex. Uh, then a swinging uh, Brett with a swinging neck breaker. They get the elbow off the top second rope. Brett hit locks in the sleeper, but Austin sits down for a neck breaker for two. Uh, Brett locks in the sharpshooter, but Animal immediately runs in to break it up. Austin tries to lock in a sharpshooter. It's pretty ugly looking, to be fair. It's it's not great. Um, Owen comes running in from the back to break up a pin. He tags in and he battles with Austin. Uh, then they battle outside. Austin goes after Stu and Bruce um, And they jump the railing When Austin gets back in Owen rolls him up For the three And there's just still chaos everywhere after the match right? Everyone's battling The officials um, Hart brothers get in the ring We got the refs, security, officials all over the place And the hearts end up standing tall In the ring as Team USA Walks off to the back Austin comes, jumps back in with a chair by himself and goes after the whole team. They just smother Austin, and we get these huge Austin sucks chants. Stone Cold ends up getting handcuffed. Fans are throwing stuff and spitting at him as he walks away. This is like an old-school territory heat here on Austin, and he is, I mean, remember, he's just turned babyface. Like, he's just been in the middle of his babyface turn, and he doesn't care. He's going out here literally trying to kill people. Flipping fans off, spit like he just does not care. Swinging at Stu, Bruce, you name it. This is why he was so damn great. He he really like it took Jim Ross for a while telling him, "Dude, you're going to be the biggest baby face in wrestling." And like he didn't believe him. He was like, "What do you know? You know, I'm I'm going to keep doing this heel thing." And he's like, "You just keep doing this thing and people are going to love you for what you're doing." Um I, I mean, this was so much fun And we, we get Stu Hart in the ring at the very end He's able to, to make his way in We get all the Hart family They pour into the ring Even Helen Which is with a really babyface type ending I mean we probably have 25, 30 people or so In the ring there at the end All the family, all of the Hearts with their kids And it, it felt like It's so funny to feel Get this feeling at the end of a show When this was actually a heel faction When they come back to the USA I mean it literally looks like we're celebrating The biggest baby face win of all time And it's what makes it a very Unique situation and they did yeah. They did a great job with it um, Yeah I, I would I would agree look I, I don't want to hand out yeah, It's hard to put a five star match On a five on five uh, Non elimination mm-hmm. match like this it, It's difficult to call it five I, I think four and a half stars is adequate. I, I don't really know, aside from the figure four on the ring post, I, I don't know and too many things they could have done to make this better. Uh, it was extremely well done. It was it was highly entertaining. Uh, and, it, and it was like, you know, it was 25 minutes. It didn't go like 40. You know right. what I mean? He like, yep. didn't try to go too long where there would be these slow, drawn-out periods. And yep. you hit something, too. I remember when I was younger as a kid, too, I would sort of get bored because I got so... I, I loved the Survivor Series elimination style matches so much that anytime there was like a six man or an eight man and it was just a one fall, I'd be kind of upset. 
Yeah, I, I'd want him to. I'd want everybody to have eliminations, you know. And so I would. I did. I was. I was like, ah, this was probably like my favorite of like a eight man, ten man, six man, some kind of tag ever. Um, it's yeah. This is like, and what Andrew was saying too. This is one show that I watch over and over again because it's quick. I throw it on in the background when I'm doing some work sometimes, and I don't. And I, I'm like in between new shows, or if I'm like waiting for something else to pop up, and I or I just don't want to have to really like worry about focusing on something. But I kind of want something warm and fuzzy in the background that I love. This is like one of those go tos for me. And and to show you a bit of a disconnect that I think that Vince had with reality at this point, I don't know how you watch this match and the absolute chemistry that was in the ring and the reaction. And, and the reviews that it got from just about everybody. And how you can make a determination that at this point, Bret Hart becomes a luxury that you can't afford. Which is basically what the decision that Vince McMahon made. Now, Vince was paying him a good amount of money. But he wasn't giving him, he wasn't giving him three, four million dollars a year like WCW offered him. He just offered him a contract that would be for 20 years. Which is kind of interesting because... Everybody always credited Vince McMahon for being able to get ahead of everything in the industry, to be a a pioneer in certain things, to see the direction that the industry was going and react before other things would happen so that he could be first in line to do different things. And that's what made him successful. We've heard that about him time and time again. But in the meantime, he didn't have enough faith in the vision in his own company to say, all right, well, I could give this guy a million bucks a year for the next 20 years. It's not going to break me. But in the not-too-distant future, probably within, oh, I don't know, three months from now, he's going to make a decision that Bret Hart is a luxury that he can't afford, which he ironically makes after he puts the belt on Bret at SummerSlam against and the Undertaker. So, I know, so think about what you're saying. Like, this match, you he, like, he makes that decision coming off of Austin, Bret at Mania, Yep. This match. Yep. And then Brett Taker at SummerSlam, which, which is it, good. It, it, the Brett Taker match at SummerSlam is it, is not talked about enough because the it's a good match in the finish. It's the finish. Yeah. Because Sean's in the mix the, and it's, it's it's great. I mean, it's great. And it's then, one of it's one of the best. Like I, I guess you would you. It's not a run and finish, but the the best like kind of you know DQ esque, even though it's not a schmozzy yeah. sort of. Yeah, a yeah. it's one of the best because because the way when 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 Sean hits Taker and the look on his face when Taker goes down and, and Brett Brett goes down and calls him over he and Sean counts one two and stops and looks at Brett dead in the eye before he hits three. It's and then so rolls damn out. good. It's and it rolls so out. I mean, it's good. It's yeah. good. And-, it's, and the fact that all of this was going on, and 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 Vince couldn't see it. You know, Vince. All Vince could see was getting his ass kicked on the Monday Night Wars. Maybe merchandise sales were down. Maybe gate sales were down. I don't know. But he ended up becoming not visionary Vince, but profit and loss EBITDA bottom line Vince. And it was that version of Vince that made the decision that it was okay to let Brett go. And I'm not saying that it was the worst decision in the world because he ends up winning the battle anyway, but you're not going to convince me that he wouldn't have been better with Brett than without him. And Andrew, yeah. think about how much different than that is than this day, na- day and age version of Vince, who literally pays everybody, has the biggest roster of ever, and, and half of them never even get on TV. He just yeah. literally pays for them to not go other places. Well, there's two things that I want to bring up. First of all, 
Yeah, the stuff with Brett was pretty insane. And Darren, you mentioned it. Yes, Vince won the Monday Night War. There were some things Vince and WWF did that made that, you know, sort of a runaway. And we'll get to more of that in a moment. That's called foreshadowing kits. However, that outcome was assured when Jamie Kellner booted WCW off of television. Without the TV time, WCW was worth absolutely nothing in 2001. That was going to happen regardless. Now, with regard to the point Gino made about just signing everybody and signing everybody and whatnot, let's not forget, WWE is now a publicly traded company. So I think the assets within are seen in a completely different light than they were in, say, 1997 when WWF was a privately held company that the McMahons ran. So take that for what you will. It's a fascinating study in just how much the business has changed in 24 years. This is great. And and it was uh, it was good because it's it's like, again, some shows are long. This is such a quick show. It's really quick. And you watch it. It moves so fast. There's nothing bad. So nothing drags at all. Throw this on if you haven't watched it recently. Throw it on in the background. If you've never seen it before, take some time out. It's two hours. You'll get back to us and you'll tell us, wow, I'm glad that you uh, you steered us to that show. It was very, very good. So, uh, uh-oh, I'm nervous now. Andrew's time to select our next show. I'm nervous. Don't know where we're headed. But I know Andrew likes to screw with me and Darren and put us through some uh, miserable shows sometimes. Although I, I will say, us through a table right now. I know. Although no. I will say, the last show was one that we had to watch. Uh, it was a big pivotal show, and uh, and and so it was definitely one we needed to check off our list. Okay, Andrew, uh, where are we going to be headed next week? So the last show that we reviewed, that was my pick, was the Apex of WCW Creative. I am referring to Bash at the Beach 1996. Hogan drops the leg on Savage. The NWO gets formed. WCW dominates the wrestling world, wins 83 straight weeks in the Monday Night Wars, yada, yada, yada. If you're a wrestling fan or you were a wrestling fan back then, you know the rest of the story. Guys, what do both of you think was the low point of WCW creative. I mean, the end, 2000, you know, right around then. That's what Pick I'm saying. Pick a show. Pick a show. What was it? Uh, Sin? No. Green? Darren, your turn. Oh, boy. Pick a show. Oh, my God. I don't know. When Flair had a heart attack. <laughs> that was bad. But I'm going to, here's what I'm going to do. I am going to go to the same show that we covered in 96 four years later. I am referring to WCW, Bash at the Beach, 2000. Do either of you know what this show is famous for? Yeah, being the last back at the beach. (laughs) So other uh, than that. No, this is, yeah, this is the, this is the, this the, is the, the second Russo finger poke of Hogan, doom, right? Finger poke of doom, stepping on Jarrett to win, and this is being. I think this is the last time we ever see Hogan, and, and we get the Russo it. promo, right? Indeed. Yeah. Now the re- the reason I picked this show is to show how quickly things change in the world of professional wrestling, and also to spotlight 
quite possibly what I feel is the dumbest contract ever handed down by anyone to anyone in the world of professional wrestling. Vince Russo was making $2.5 million per year. And you know what we got on this show? I'm going to go and I'm going to run through this show. So that everybody, everybody terrible, knows. But go ahead, please do. Okay, we have an opener that was actually pretty good. Chavo Guerrero against you. Just like everything, Chavo dude Guerrero. Come on. <laughs> okay, dude, one, of, one of my one of my favorite wrestling writers, Scott Keith, gave that a three and a half star rating. It's a good <laughs> match. Um, then we start going into the abyss here. We have for the hardcore <laughs> title, Big Vito against Norman Smiley with Ralphus. We have. A wedding gown match between Miss Hancock well, and Miss Daphne. Yeah, we have a WCW World Tag Title match between Sean Stasiak and Chuck Palumbo and Chronic. Oh my we god, have, this match is 13 and a half minutes? Yep. We have oh, Canyon no. going up against Booker T, and that's actually a pretty decent match. Yeah, like Booker is good at this point. Like Booker's yeah. really starting to come into his own. Yeah, yeah. that's fine. We have Scott Steiner going up against the fat chick thriller Mike Awesome. Oh, no. We have my, one of my personal favorites, a graveyard match between the Demon and Vampiro. We have a match between Buff Bagwell and Shane Douglas. We've got Jared and Hogan, where Hogan cuts the promo talking about how the company's in the shape it's in because of bullshit like this. We have Vince Russo coming out and cutting a promo and turning what he had planned to be a work shoot into something that Hogan wound up suing him for. To work shit, basically. Yes. <laughs> we have a match between Goldberg and Scott Hall. This is not the Goldberg of the streak with the invincibility aura. This is heel Goldberg. Why they decided to turn Goldberg heel, I'll never know. Oh, and, then we, and then we get... A main event that's actually not bad. We have Jared and Booker T. It, that's not a terrible match. It's These okay. Two yeah, guys it's, that it's, could work. After but the my offensive pay per view leading up to it, it's actually not a terrible 2. way to end. $2.5 million per year. And you know what? There's a chance maybe he gets some residuals based off of the fact that at least three people will be re-watching Bash at the Beach 2000 <laughs> between this week and next. Guys, have fun! This, this, this was Vince Russo's sad attempt to try to recreate the Montreal Screwjob in WCW by coming out and acting like the Vince McMahon character, throwing the belt at Hogan, cutting the promo that you know Vince would later cut you know a week after the fact or a few days after the fact that I I have no doubt yeah. that this was supposed to be some kind of a you know weird version of what happened in Montreal and to say that it backfired would be a very very strong understatement like these version this 2000 Shane Douglas versus Buff Bagwell like I just they go eight minutes. Like, I'm just curious to watch these guys in 2000, like these versions yeah. of them too. Oh. Now, I, you guys know this. I was a WCW guy through and through 96, 97, 98, 99 or thereabouts was when I started watching both shows really as an interested person in both. And then during 99, it just became clear WCW was out of ideas 
this to me was the ultimate, okay, this product has no redeeming qualities at all whatsoever. God bless the people that could still work within that company. You've got the cruiserweights that are still there doing their thing, even though there are no masks left at this point. You've got Booker T coming into his own as a worker. That's fine. Jeff Jarrett's a decent worker, but he was not a main event draw. The line from Mike Graham is a great one. Broke a thousand guitars and never drew a dime. That's Jarrett. (laughs) That was Um, a great one. But this was just a case where it's remarkable to see how a company can fall so hard in the span of four years. Now, admittedly, part of me picking this show is done to try to hear the horrible things that raced through both of your guys' heads while rewatching it. That's part of my rationale. But the other part is just to signify how much things changed for WCW in four years. This was a company that in 96, 97 could do no wrong. And in 2000, they had a guy who just had no clue what he was doing, no governor on him to say, hey, this idea is not that great. It needs finessing. My goodness, was this show putrid. Yeah, Vince Vince Russo definitely exposed himself as not being the brainchild of all the... It it is funny to, to listen to the things that he tries to take credit for. Yeah. You oh know, my it, gosh! It's funny, like like stuff on the Rock or oh, Austin. Everything. Oh everything. my god! Even even the, Montre- even the Montreal screw job. He takes everything. credit for that too. Him you and Cornette get into yeah. it about that. It's pretty funny to hear them like battle oh. back and forth about oh, it. I mean, Cornette has said some things, like <laughs> like I mean, Cornette has gone so far to say the only thing that I ask in this life is that I outlive Vince Russo so I could piss on his grave. Like yeah, that I is think- an actual statement from Jim. There's Ford. a there was a restraining order or something between the two of them back and forth because well, I mean, so he just, I mean, he thinks he was God's gift, and uh, we just as so much crap as freaking magazine guy and shut yeah. up. He was uh, Vic Venom, right? Yeah. That was his yep. name, his yep, uh, yeah. his alter ego in the WWF magazine where where he wrote and real original. He, it just shows you you can. It's different when you've got that Vince filter, right? It's different for him to be that he's got he's still the guy that makes the end all be all decision. And when he's not there to make it, some people look really stupid. And yep. uh, we're gonna talk about how Vince Russo looked really stupid next week on the old wrestling rewatch. It's more fun than you guys thought it would be, right? It is yeah, no, it'll be fun to talk about it real. I- I'll enjoy it. I, I just can't I, I just can't believe I gotta find like three hours of a day to watch half this. <laughs> yeah. You don't sleep anyway, dude. Come on. Throw it on while he's handicapping some turfway there. Uh DZ turfway ain't racing again until June. No, I was gonna say you're done now. I was gonna say so uh you're not running this week either, I don't think. Campy, campy. When uh, DZ, let us know about the uh, the new podcast and everything you got working on. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it's called Beat the Chalk. We did our first episode last week. Uh, we had a bunch of good listeners, got some good feedback. Uh, this week, uh, we, we had a, a question come in about the structuring of pick four and pick five tickets and, and what our game plan is to, to do that. So I kind of dove into what makes me target a pick four or a pick five sequence, how I attack those sequences, and mistakes that I think a lot of us make when we go about putting together pick four and pick five tickets and how we feel a bit of a subconscious pressure to play certain pick fours and pick fives just because it seems like everybody else's, there's big guarantees, it's a big day of racing, and not necessarily because we have a very good opinion 
about one or two horses in the sequence. So I think that's going to be a good listen. We'll review some of the Kentucky Derby preps. We'll see where we're at in terms of some of the Derby contenders. And we're going to handicap some races in, in the state of Florida this weekend because it's the only state that I am 100% yeah. confident yeah. will actually run races. Yeah, right. Affected by the winter. So we're going to look at Tampa and Gulfstream for Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And, and you know, just like we go through, it doesn't matter if it's a maiden race, a 10-claimer, whatever race we come up with uh, that we think we have a good angle and a good opinion, we'll review that. So uh, that podcast should be up uh, either Thursday, probably I would say Thursday afternoon, beat the chalk. Um, go to my Twitter page at, at the track seven. You'll see the link. And by all means, on Twitter, at the track seven, shoot me a message, shoot me a question, anything you'd like me to discuss, and I'm more than happy to implement it into the, uh, into the podcast. AC. I have a question, Darren. Yeah. I would like to know in great detail how <laughs> you would book Hulk Hogan in 2001. <laughs> go discuss talking that about on the podcast. He's how, talking about- how I would book him in 2001? Yes. I, would, I would bury him like the corpse. <laughs> wouldn't be on the show. Pre-show um, match, see- dark match. <laughs> On a serious note, that sounds absolutely fascinating, and that's a topic that's debated a lot in horse racing Twitter, like everything is, because there is a sect of people out there who see there's only one way to play tickets, and they're very, very stubborn. Being able to educate people to be able to say, hey, here's why this sequence that looks great to you may not necessarily be all that great, and oh, by the way, Here's a way where you can make money off of your opinion, which is really what all handicappers should be striving to do, right? Yep. So I'm looking forward to that. That one's going to be fun. Uh, speaking of pick fours, I'm going to gloat a little bit here. Gave out a late pick four for Saturday at Golden Gate on Champagne and JD last week. Both Matt Dinnerman and I hit it on very small tickets. I had an $8 ticket that returned 104 and change. Thank you, Ron Bauer. Thank you very much. Sure. By the way, I think Ron Bauer wins the Belmont. I'm just saying. We've been hearing that. Looks I'm like he wants to go all day. I'm taking that bet. Mm-hmm. Ninety-three thousand one hundred seventy-three to one, Darren. That's my price. I'll, I'll even give you. I'll even give you another prep race, and then you can. And then within reason, you can give me the price you want on them. Ninety-three thousand one hundred seventy-three to one. <laughs> if you're that confident, why not lay the odds? <laughs> and if you're wondering why I picked ninety-three thousand one hundred seventy-three as the odds, you're listening to the correct show. Now, <laughs> this week on Champagne and JD, we've got something we're really excited about. Rachel McLaughlin from Indiana Grand is going to come on with nice. us. Cool. She is a one-woman marketing tornado. At Indiana Grand, does a great she job. She does everything, and she is so passionate about this game. She puts up with a lot of shit from wrestling fans on Twitter. I'm one of them. I was going to say, meaning nothing. you, yeah, and you. You've yeah. been involved too, guys. Both of sure, sure. Well, I don't, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, but you see, you guys always start it. You guys always come up with it, and you go, "Hey, at Rachel, let's stir this pot up." And, and you then we'll add in a gif or two in there. Yeah, yeah, we'll hey, throw, we'll throw it in the mix. Blame, blame Bill Downs. That's my story. Bill, I'm sticking yeah, to it. Know. But it's going to be a lot of fun because we're going to be talking about fan education and driving fan enthusiasm. I'm really looking forward to that. That's going to be a lot of fun, and very few people in racing know as much about engaging people within the game. As Rachel does. So Champagne and JD is the name of the show. It's on YouTube. Should be up Thursday of this week or so. Give that a watch if you'd like. Hit the subscribe button so you don't miss any of our weekly updates. 
at Andrew Champagne on Twitter for all of my stuff. I'd say there's a lot going on in horse racing, but you know, there's Gulfstream this week. Everything else is snowed out, and I refuse to acknowledge the gigantic purses being offered in another part of the world that one publication tried to say was succeeding against all odds. Seriously, just stop it. <laughs> I, I, I figured out what their game plan is in, in that uh, country that we're not speaking of. I think they're going to run this race every year and just not pay, not the, pay the purses out. Hey, just whatever keep... works. I mean, yeah. we don't have an update on what's happening with maximum security. And I dare someone in Saudi Arabia to ask that question. Yeah. 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 Uh, we'll uh, have this conversation. Uh, Never, because like you said, we're not going to, I'm not going to be. Hey, you know what? I mean, they, there are that. wrestling shows that take place over there. You're right. We and could I be reviewing some of those I, at some point in the, the future, the, like, especially if both of you take me off. There were one or two at the beginning that weren't bad, and then they just got real, real, real brutal. Um, Goldberg Undertaker. That's all you need to know. That's uh, going to be one that we will hopefully never, ever get to. Darren Zocali, Andrew Champagne, uh, love talking to you guys every week. Uh, old Wrestling Rewatch next week. We will be headed to 2000 WCW for Batch at the Beach. Do not go anywhere, folks. Plenty more on this episode of That's What G Said Podcast. And a big thank you to uh, Eric for helping us out talking some basketball. Big thank you to the boys, Andrew Champagne and Darren Zocali, with another episode of uh, the Old Wrestling Rewatch this week. Hope you enjoyed our Saturday uh, horse racing conversation. And uh, we got plenty on tap for you next week. So much to discuss. We'll be back with our uh, everyday coverage of Sam Houston Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Jeremy Balin's going to join us to talk Wednesday. Nick Tamaro's going to do- join us to talk Saturday and all those stakes races they have. Martha Clausen is going to preview the Sam Houston week because Saturday there's a bunch of those Texas bred stakes races out there. Really excited about that. Dave Handelin who uh, works for the Minnesota Timberwolves, is going to join us to talk some NBA. We'll be back with This Week in Wrestling with Chad Cooper. We'll have another uh, NBA Who's Hot, Who's Not with Eric. We'll have Barry Spears talking Gulfstream Park Saturday. We'll have WandaVision with Tim Kelly. And we're going to be recapping Young Rock. That is going to be all next week on That's What G Said Podcast. Have a great weekend, everyone, folks. Best of luck in all your wagers and all your gambles and, uh, and just life out there. Have a great weekend.